This week, we travel to the Southern California Gang Conference being held in San Diego, and we catch up with many of our previous guests, including Lou Velozzi. Lou, we are back with you once again at the San Diego or the Southern California Gang Conference. Welcome, amigo. Thank you, guys. Once again, honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Now, our female listeners are going to want some new pictures of you, so you need to come up with something Did new. Did you say new or nude? No, so either. Either. <laughs> I'm sure they'd be happy either way. Oh, you were, you were such the candy man. Oh, he is so good looking. Oh, give me some more pictures. Well, I have a website. Just go to livelosey.com. There's plenty on there. Now, do you have a, do you have a pay, pay-per-view site that goes with that, too? Uh, it's, it's forthcoming. It's well, forthcoming. Yeah. And he'll probably send you an email that says, let me send you my personal pictures. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever uh, it takes. And as you can tell, he has a very good sense of humor because if we piss him off, he's going to break us in two like a toothpick. <laughs> yeah, he's got, yeah, his tattoos have got muscles, so. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Guys, hey, we're back once again. We got, we got the. You, you rocked the stage yesterday. Yes, Besides you did. rocking the stage, he's also a fucking sandbagger. <laughs> he is yeah, a sandbagger of the highest order. But we revealed his secrets yesterday to the whole we world did. in San Diego. It's and, and Victor was on episode thirty-six, I believe. So Victor Avila, man, we want to do a catch-up. So we're out here in sunny San Diego at a secret, undisclosed location that is being attended by a thousand cops. And dude, you you took to the stage yesterday. I thought told just an incredible, fantastic story. Thank you, thank you so much for that. It, it, it's always a pleasure to be able to share the story uh, with law enforcement officers and let, let them know what we went through and and in detail because I, I love to share the reality of what, what we went through in Mexico, our assignment, um, but then also uh, get to share how that has kind of trickled and the ripple effect that we're facing now at our southern border mm-hmm. and the beyond the crisis. I don't call it a crisis anymore. It's chaos. It's chaos. It's lawlessness. It's uh, upside down and backwards. That's the way I describe it. And it's actually been something that we've been dealing for a long, long time that now, as you see, it developing and, ha- and it's been for over a year now. It is really something that um, a lot of people, I think, need to be aware of. You you said some interesting things. You actually, um, so we're we're kind of catching up for where you were. So just uh, real quickly too, uh, your state bid. You didn't you didn't quite get there, but you made some good connections though, didn't you? I mean, you you kind of looking at the future as well too, right? Yeah, I uh, I ran for Texas Land Commissioner. Didn't make the runoff there. Uh, did an incredible uh, job going around the state of Texas, and yeah, I got my name out there, uh, telling people the. Uh, the realities of what we're facing, and not just uh, not just the border, but in a lot of other aspects, oil and gas, mm. uh, which <laughs> it's on a lot of people's minds today, with uh, gas prices. And so, the truth. <laughs> and so it's uh, it's something that I'll uh, I might have one more in me. Uh, I think we talk about this, uh, but we'll see. We'll see in the next uh, couple of years. See what happens there. Yeah. You know, but even you said, too, uh, you learned a lot about Texas going around. I mean, you thought you know a lot about Texas, but, man, there is a lot to discover about it's Texas. It's a big, big place, and I had I thought I had been to uh, everywhere in Texas, and I've been to some towns now uh, as I did the campaign. was pleasantly surprised, and the difference in um, the West Texas, Southern Texas, uh, East Texas is an incredible place. 
uh, I'm, I'm very uh, fortunate to live in the, the great state of Texas. Sweet. You know, the nice thing about you telling your story, too, is is our listeners have heard us say we try to never forget officers killed in the line of duty. And you sharing your officer keeps the, the memory of Jaime Zapata, an agent that was with you that was murdered in Mexico and, and you were wounded. And uh, we're just thankful to God that you're here with us still and still sharing your story. You did not let that get you down. You know, you've continued to, to carry the torch for what you believe in. And uh, it's, for me and Morgan, it's a true honor to have you here for a second time. I appreciate it because you're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it, that's, my, that's my number one goal every time I, I, uh, I do these conferences and speak is always to uh, bring the memory of Jaime Zapata and keep his memory alive and to share that unfortunately a lot of people don't know yeah. that we lost an agent in line of duty in Mexico. Uh, the second agent after Kiki Camarena in 1985, and yeah. so I will continue to do that as much as I can. Bless you, brother. Let's let's still follow up on that too, because um, we got the honor too of doing Q and A with you after your talk. I mean, you kept people in their seats for two hours. I mean, people love that. We're going to talk a little bit about the video too. Some of the videos you showed being down at the border, but well, plus he got that standing ovation too. I don't know if you realize yeah. that, but you got a standing ovation. Well, Not everybody actually, does. Let's talk real quick about his sandbagging first, because I want to get this out of the way. <laughs> Something and look, I pride myself as being a professional. I taught interview and interrogation at places like the National Security Agency to the FBI. And dude, you you scammed us. You, <laughs> but we revealed him in all his glory. We, we exposed you for what you are. You are the world record holder of the world's longest pistol shot. Um, and so, if I said people, what do you think the world's longest pistol shot is? I even, I didn't even do you wonder because I told one of the guys yesterday I thought it was this much. I don't want to reveal yet. I was off by almost fifty percent. So tell everybody when you did it and what the world's record is for the longest pistol shot held by Victor Avila. Uh, it was, we did it about a year and a half ago out of Nevada at a salt flat. And uh, the, the record is 2,010 yards. Uh, I hold two 2,010 yards and 1,650 yards. The 2,010 yards with a Tanfoglio Hunter 10 millimeter pistol with a scope on it, obviously, to be able to see that, that 36 by 36 inch metal target that, that we hit. You showed the video yesterday. At that yesterday. distance, it looks like the head of a pin. I don't think you, you can very, even see it. When very you... difficult. Uh, it took a lot. Uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, I'm a black belt in karate, and so I kind of had to go back into that zone of uh -huh. the breathing. It was, it was shot very early in the morning. Uh, right at sunrise, we're out there at 4.30 in the morning. It was a beautiful day and no wind and all these all these factors mm -hmm. and of course they had all the equipment the the lasers the 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 sound to be able to record it as a world record um, but i have to give credit to the technology that i use and that's usa one shot device which is a a a, a brace if you will and it, it doesn't doesn't get adjusted by calling it that because uh, it's not attached to your arm. It's not attached to your pistol. You grab it with your hand once you put it behind your pistol, and it makes your pistol into this little mini rifle. Mm -hmm. And um, just today, uh, the, the one of the presentations, they were showing a video of uh, officer de-escalation, and all I was thinking of the, was of the U.S. one technology. If that officer would have had that, and it's an, it's an offender with, with the knife mm -hmm. coming at him, and the police officers are about... 25 to 30 yards from him and they're they're retreating retreating and if someone would have had if this officer would have had that technology they'd be able to set 
and take them down. You could actually shoot them wherever you want. That's how accurate wow. this this device makes your pistol. If you're a bad shot, this makes you a good shot. If you're a good shot, it makes you an exceptional shot. And yeah. so uh, I give credit to that technology. Well, and to the record, I mean, now we're talking over a mile. That one point one point one four miles with a pistol. With a pistol, we're talking six thousand and thirty feet, and a mile is five thousand two hundred and eighty feet. Correct. And dude, and it got there. How long did it take from uh, to hit target? Eleven seconds. And That's an amazing me, thing. You, you have to and so you have to hold that that position because when you shoot guns, you usually shoot, and you, you tend to want to look up to see where your mm -hmm. where your round hit. He said, you cannot look up. You have to maintain that because it's going to take a long time. And it took 11 seconds for that round when it left that pistol to hit that metal target. It's amazing. I, I, as many times I watched that video, we play it. We, we surprised Victor yesterday uh, during his Q&A and showed the entire audience here the video. And just to watch it 11 seconds before the bullet hits the target is just unfreaking believable So where did it hit on the target? If we looked at it like a square, like a clock, where did it hit at? It hit right almost center left. Center left, and uh, uh, this is not, I didn't hit it on the first shot. You need to understand this. There were several rounds shot at it, and the first rounds I hit were right at the foot of the target, mm. right at the foot. And so I had to just come up a little bit. And one of the shots, I actually shot the antenna of the, <laughs> one of the recording devices, Oops. which was incredible. Like, how do you hit the antenna? I don't know how I hit the antenna, but uh, then eventually got right up and hit so that target. Put this in perspective. So when you're aiming for something like that, how high above the ground is that bullet traveling? Because whatever goes up has to come down around. You can't. Right. You don't shoot in a straight Correct. line. So gravity starts. You know, is is what pulls that thing down. So how high up did that bullet reach? We were up on purpose, 100 100 feet above from. So we're actually aiming down a little bit. But even as you look at it, think of it. We're up on a little hill, 100 feet above from the target. But at, but as we're aiming, we're still aiming upwards. Oh yeah. Another couple hundred feet. And so the, as you mentioned yesterday, the the scope is down, but the gun is facing up. Up. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because of the distance and and, and all these other uh, variety of things that you have to mm -hmm. think of. That's the way the the round travels. And so be able to come up and then come down into that target. You know, and, and in qualifications, we're happy if we hit it from 25 Talk yards. Look, you got guys. So I have to go back and do my annual requalification. And one of the things the range master down there does, because uh, there's this thing called HR 218, so you can do your concealed carry as a law enforcement officer. And they used to have guys, they would start like at the, the three-yard line, the five-yard mm -hmm. line, right. and go out to the 25. said, no, by the time you got to the 25, because if you're good, you shoot some holes in there. They'd be shooting. They, they doesn't matter if they hit the target or not. I said, no, we start at the 25-yard line and see if you can yeah. hit it first <laughs> right. and bring it back in. But. Same thing with us as a federal agent. Uh, it didn't matter if you hit the 25 anymore. They were like, you qualified already. But because people, uh, it's hard. It's hard to shoot a target at 25 yards. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's a hand standing position, it's very difficult. And so if you add all the adrenaline and mm -hmm. all the... Uh, threat that a police officer is facing on top of that, right. an active shooter situation and stuff, this device really helps you in so many ways, not just the accuracy, but it calms the officer down. It'll You feel the support of that handgun, and all of a sudden it, you feel better having that, especially if you're holding someone at gunpoint for a while. Right. You have you don't get tired. Oh, look. You I, start getting that muscle fatigue. Yeah, correct. Well, let me tell you, we had a standoff one time inside of a trailer, like you think of a mobile home, a guy who was a 
convicted felon and stuff. We knew he had AIDS. He was kind of going nuts. He had cut his chest, was bleeding and stuff. And he's kind of behind a table like what we're sitting at here, but he's got like two or three knives there. And we know that if he comes at us, we're going to have to shoot him. So part of this is I'm basically doing a lot of the impromptu hostage negotiations, but people, we're sitting there for 45 minutes. Like you say, we're holding a weapon. Hopefully, you know, you got to be ready because in that short distance, if he just makes a move like that, you got to fire because... But I had never felt this before. I got done after that 45 minutes, like you say, Steve, holding that weapon out, mm -hmm. focusing. I got done. I went out and sat in my car. I almost went to sleep. It was that adrenaline dump, yeah. that mm -hmm. fatigue. And it's like I have never felt. Well, plus your hands start sweating when you're holding something that long. And it's just a lot of variables that come into play like that. It's not, it's not the movie crap that you no, see. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> and so to put a final point on that story, this same guy, we arrest him, put him in jail. He gets out kind of three months later. Sheriff's office stops him. They go to handcuff him. Uh, he he slips. This guy was small enough. He slipped his handcuffs off in the sheriff's office. Now we're chasing a sheriff's office vehicle with oh, this guy. Tried to oh, go. man. <laughs> this time he went to prison for a little while. But anyway, back to our regularly uh. scheduled podcast with Victor. So, no, dude, that was just like. So, yeah, we played the video uh, for you. And hopefully you didn't know that was coming, right? I did not. I didn't know. Okay, so we, we, we got you, man. All right. I had sandbag, no idea. Sandbagging, uh, you know. <laughs> well, it's funny because we talked to Mel the night before and he said, hey, would you guys go up there with Victor and, and during the Q&A and ask questions? And and uh, he said, do you know any stories? And I said, yes, we do. And Mel called his tech guy immediately and they downloaded the YouTube awesome. video. So cool stuff. We, we cool set stuff. you up. So anyway, let's getting back to this. So, but hey, there's another thing we talked about on stage and I want to follow up with you. And it's one of the reasons that you were out on the highway of death. And just to kind of recap so people understand, tell us again about this highway, because you had been prohibited by the ambassador from being on this highway. This yeah. was like the most dangerous area of Mexico. So That's just right. give us a quick recap of the highway. Yeah, the, uh, the U.S. ambassador has sent out an alert to all U.S. embassy personnel that you were prohibited to drive on Highway 57, which is the main corridor from Mexico City up to Texas, whether for personal reasons or business reasons. You needed specific uh, written consent from the ambassador and the regional security office, which obviously uh, was not done by my office because the assignment came in the day before and there's no operational plan, there was no briefing, it's just go. Go, go, go. Usually on that highway, we would need uh, three armored suburbans, you know, two for security and whoever's going mm -hmm. to do whatever they're going to do in the middle, and additionally, Mexican federal police or military. And you got to understand, back in 2011, that whole corridor of where the shooting happened uh, near the state of San Luis Potosí was controlled by Los Zetas. As a matter of fact, I mentioned this yesterday, we actually... Our shooting uh, saved the, the, the state and the, the city of San Luis Potosí. They had been under siege mm -hmm. by the Setos for so long. They controlled that state, that, that city. And uh, because they were taken down after our shooting and, and were caught and some were uh, killed, some were extradited, all that, it, it basically cleaned up that city. But, um, but they controlled that area. They controlled the traffic. They controlled everything and, uh, and everything, which is ironic because the Mexican federal police headquarters a train academy is there in that same town wow wow so let's talk now about your ongoing you've had some developments in the cargo because the real issue and this is what we had questions about in the pictures and you've made a discovery recently those pictures so first of all no authorization official authorization to have you guys do this so it's right. just you and Jaime in the vehicle transporting stuff that you guys thought was some kind of monitoring equipment right intercept equipment you were the very first ones that I told uh, during uh, the first podcast mm -hmm. no one knew I had just heard that information you were the very first ones that I shared publicly that possibly it was not 
just the elect the uh, surveillance equipment or, or transmitters or, or tracking devices that we were going to go pick up, but possibly my boss's personal belongings that he sent us on this errand run. The boss who would not follow protocol and forced you guys to go on this trip. Correct, which would be the attache uh, of Mexico, the ICE attache. Hmm. And so... I am now have continued to follow up on that, and uh, for people to understand, in, in the police world, anytime there's a crime scene, anytime there's a house, a vehicle, there's an inventory done mm -hmm. of that very meticulously, especially of a vehicle, whatever is in there, if you find a, a CD, a pen, a cell phone, you have to document well, We've that. all done that. I mean, I found right. a piece of paper here, did this. You, it's one thing to overlook maybe a small thing, but we're talking boxes we're inside talking a vehicle. Correct. And um, and so I went back to all the paperwork that I have as a as not just the agent but the victim of this crime. I get uh, the the documents and everything that was shared at the trial uh, belongs to me, and I have a lot of that paperwork. I went back page by page and was looking for that inventory and did not find it. I found one where uh, my folder, that the folder that belongs to the Suburban, where you log in your mileage and the gas and mm -hmm. all this other stuff that you have to do for administrative purposes, that was logged. So that means, and that was in the back pouch of the of the passenger seat. So if that was logged, that means everything else is logged. Mm -hmm. I'm, I am now in the process of trying to locate that log sheet which is where uh, the FBI custodian, the the suburban is, I understand, is still in a warehouse somewhere where uh, because the trial, the the case is still not completely over because there's some appeals that are pending and such, and resentencing. So that's still there. It's not destroyed. Uh, I'm trying to get to the bottom of I can get the access to what was in those boxes because I shared it with you guys. If, if in fact, my, my supervisor, my bosses send us on this road to go pick up his personal uh, belongings, um, there's going to be some more uh, information coming off on that. Some sure. atonement coming yes, is what I'm yes, looking for. Yes. But you've also engaged another organization to help you fight this. Yes, Judicial Watch has been a, a big partner of mine. They've always tried to, I've been working with them for years to try to get access to buy FOIA requests. They're, they're the FOIA experts. Mm -hmm. These are the ones that are going after Hillary Clinton's emails and such. They, they know how to manipulate that. They know how to go through that system and even file lawsuits. And when they um, decided to represent me pro bono, they said, we're going to try to get these documents for you, Victor. And I said, great. But... Uh, don't be surprised if, if, you're, if you don't. And they were very confident they were going to try to get this and any documents related to our shooting and mm -hmm. all that. Back then, obviously, it had nothing to do with the boxes. But to this day, we haven't been able to get anything through, even through the Judicial Watch. And they're like wondering, what in the world is happening here? What kind of a cover-up is exactly. happening here that we can't get access to it? So we've tried FOIA with ICE, FOIA with the DHS. And we've even tried FOIA through directly through the State Department, I play a video, uh, a call, an audio call that I called from the suburban into the U.S. Embassy. So for sure, I know that exists because I play it every time I do a presentation. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we do an official request for that, that doesn't exist. But there is no There's audio. no recording? There's no recording. We don't... They well, come. then how the hell did you get it in the first place? Right. Well, I got it, I got it separately from different channels. 
But, but that's my point. It exists. And exactly. we played it in the trial. Yep. yep. We also played it in the trial. It's part of the evidence. It's part of the case. It's part of the case. Part file. of the case. But when we requested it directly from the State Department, well, wait a minute. And, that, and, that, and when it was just the audio call, we won't request it emails and everything else because obviously someone mentioned me, had to have talked about me from the State Department mm -hmm. to ICE. There's communication there. We want that communication. Well, it has never been given to us. How does, so see, this, this, is what, this is what defies logic. So if I'm going to introduce a call into, into the trial, into evidence, I have to lay the foundation for it. The foundation means who was the custodian of the records? Let's introduce it. Where did it come from? That would have all had to been done, either that or they had to stipulate to it. But one way or the other, it's introduced. And now they're saying, so uh, evidence that's been officially introduced into trial and uh, uh, has laid the foundation for it, has been accepted at evidence in trial, and is a trial exhibit, does not exist in the State Department. Not through the FOIA uh, request. As a matter of fact, the very first request to the State Department, initial response was, oh, we found 1,800 and plus documents related to Victor Avila and Jaime Zapata. Great. We got excited. Said, Here's 1,800 documents that we're going to go off of. Two years later, that 1,800 came down to one document. I'm not exaggerating. Wow. Yet. One document, and that one document was heavily redacted. And here I am talking to you guys still with no documents. We had sued the government and, and for a uh, you know, uh, negligent uh, lawsuit, and it didn't, go, it didn't go anywhere. Why? Because we could never get the documents and the evidence to the judge, and the judge and eventually dismissed the, the whole lawsuit, and there was no recovery there. And so 11 years later, we have nothing to show because the government will not allow us to get access to us. And of course, you talk about Fast and Furious comes in here because mm -hmm. weapons used against us were related to Fast and Furious. Maybe that's the reason why it'll open up that, uh, that case again. Maybe because of what was in the boxes. Maybe this whole thing is because they sent us on a personal errand uh, and you put uh, two agents and their lives in danger and one was killed because of it. And now, and I, I said this yesterday, if in fact, my boss would have said, Victor, go pick up this equipment. Uh, we're going to use this equipment for whatever A, B, and C, which never happened. There was no briefing. Had no idea what we were picking up. Uh, and said, do you mind bringing my personal belongings? I probably would have said, I don't mind. It's okay. Right. But, but it's called communication. It's called leadership. It's but called, let's have it's an called operation, a lot of other things. Let's have an operations plan. It's an operational plan. plan. Let's yeah. have people do it. Let's do it the right way. Every time we did it, every other time was the correct way with operational plans, with backups and, and, and everything else, but not this time. Mm. But you've also made a recent discovery, though, too. You were going through a bunch of stuff because the pictures are key to this whole thing, the, the boxes and stuff. You made an additional discovery off of a CD here just a while back. Right. So I find this CD and I go through it and sure enough, there are, there are pictures that I hadn't, I don't remember seeing them before, but I might have, but there are pictures of, of, the, of the boxes outside of the Suburban already on the ground and there's the picture is of someone taking pictures of the boxes and somebody actually holding a tablet, like doing an inventory of the mm -hmm. boxes. Mm -hmm. I have the pictures. And I was like, oh my God. So I provided this to Judicial Watch and these boxes, when you look at them, Sorry. That's okay. That's, that's <laughs> the bullshit class. meter. It just went class. <laughs> it's, it's time to go to class. Uh, when you see these boxes, you're like, wait a minute. This one of the boxes is a four foot tall box. It's the one that took the most of the space in the back of the Suburban. I don't think there's transmitters or electrical yeah. devices in there. There is the Pelican brief there that you see in the in the pictures that that would suggest that that in fact was where the the electrical equipment was, but or surveillance equipment, whatever it was. 
and now all of a sudden I'm looking at these boxes and I might or might not be tainted already because of what was shared with me. Either way, I want to get to the bottom of what's inside those boxes. Right, right. This, I mean, this just stinks so much of a cover-up to protect one person and the reputation of an agency because they've embarrassed themselves by not... We, t we all took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and tell the truth, and they haven't done that. It's just it's, it's reprehensible what ICE... The way they've handled this thing. Well, it's not only that, but like you said, it gets back into Fast and Furious, right? So if these mm -hmm. weapons, we we know, well, we, we know weapons have been used to kill federal law enforcement officers yep. before. Yep. These right. same weapons, right? Yes. So um, mm. I, I just, I think the Fast and Furious angle, that has some interesting aspects to it because it also aligns with Jay Dobbins when we talked with him. Mm -hmm. uh, some things there, one of his supervisors was directly involved in the Fast and Furious investigation. So, I mean, it's, unfortunately, there's some things that get covered up. But that being said, so, I mean, your presentation obviously well-received. The only problem I got is um, it's Victor Victor. So you brought your son out here. His name is Victor. So we don't know who to call. When we say Victor, you both go, yes. You know? I'll tell you, I'm, I'm very excited. This is the first time I bring my son. He uh, obviously got out of school. He's a uh, he's gonna be a senior in high school, and this is the first time that he's interacted with me in this type of uh, uh, environment. Uh, and no, he's not going into law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, he was talking out there with Lou Velosi, and Lou Velosi is like, no, no, he's, he's gonna go be an engineer, and we're all very happy about. Is that, that. what he wants to do? Yeah, he looks like electrical engineer is what he's uh, leaning towards, which I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> like. Please don't do any federal law enforcement. But, yep. uh, yeah, I'm very proud as we, he's with me this week. Yeah, but you know something, though? We talked to a guy yesterday that just joined the FBI. He was an aerospace engineer, and he said, yeah. oh, this is boring. So he may become an engineer, <laughs> get bored after five or six years, and still join. That's what you say. You introduced him. Hey, here's a real rocket scientist. He can't beat the excitement. I got to say that. <laughs> That's true. Hey, there's what, that guy there's was nothing real, like it. Yeah. Nothing so, like um, it. So let's talk now about where things are going. So that's still underway. Um, but you're out here. I mean, you've sold a shit ton of books, so that's good. Yeah. Uh, that'll at least get you your money to fly back to uh, Texas. Yeah, <laughs> it'll cover the uh, uh, the money I put into write the book. But, yeah. you know, I, I always said this from day one. It wasn't about the money, about the book. It's about getting the message out. It's nice to be able to sell the books, to, to share the, the information that's in there uh, to more people and a broader audience. But I, I love doing this. I, I'll, you know, I'm available to come and speak to groups. And I like to speak to uh, a diverse group, of not just law enforcement. I, mm -hmm. I talk to a lot of law enforcement and military groups. But I like to talk to a lot to church groups, uh, 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 private sector groups, because a lot of the, my story entails leadership and right. the bad leadership, the bad decision making. Absolutely. The, why it takes that? Why is it so important to make the hard right decision instead of the easy wrong one? I, I talk a lot about that. I talk about my faith and why I'm a survivor. Um, um, uh, someone asked me yesterday, "What's one of the most silliest questions you've gotten?" And I've gotten a lot of silly questions. But one time in a conference, someone asked me, uh, "Why didn't I die?" And which is a kind of a yeah. uh, it's a terrible question to be Sorry asked. Sorry to inconvenience right? you, man. Right. If I died, I wouldn't be able to do this presentation right. and now. I, and I, I remember when they asked me that question, and I it took me a second to think about it. And I said, "Well, God, that's the way God wanted it." Absolutely. And and I firmly wasn't believe that day. it wasn't my day. Uh, he wanted me here for a purpose. My purpose is probably to continue to spread this, to protect our sovereignty. I'm a big, big border security advocate. Uh, I'm a big patriot. I love our my well, country see, and our country. Victor, but that's see, and people, I think. Don't don't wrap their heads around it sometimes. Uh, this is kind of shock to you, but you're not, I mean, you're Hispanic, right? How could I, right? How could you be uh, such you're a patriot? Yeah. Um, I, I, I share this in, in my presentation about being uh, uh, so lonely and fe feeling like such a foreigner 
when the shooting happened in Mexico, when there were mm -hmm. 40 minutes on that road, let me tell you, um, and once I was able to disclose at the hospital that we were Americans, I, that's the proudest I've ever felt as an American, but also knew that I wasn't from there. And, it, and people sometimes will take it the wrong way. It doesn't mean that I hate Mexico or right. disregard my heritage. It has nothing to do with that. I love my heritage and my, and my parents and for doing that and coming here the, the, to the United States the, the legal way. I embrace that. I embrace it a lot. But it doesn't change the fact that I was born and raised in the United States of America, and I will continue to defend this country as much as I can. And I know the feeling, especially being a Hispanic, especially being so close in cultures. Because yeah. I had to, I born up, raised in the border, I had to learn both cultures. I had to know about John Wayne. I had to know about uh, Vicente Fernandez. I had to know different music, um, and I I wanted to know. I, I know both cultures that way. It, uh, I steal a little bit of this uh, uh, from the movie uh, Selena because Selena's father talks about that in the movie. How it was very challenging to be a Hispanic because you were expected to know both cultures. When I went and visited my cousins in Mexico. I didn't speak the same Spanish that they spoke. They were mm -hmm. native Sp Spanish speakers. I wasn't. Even though Spanish was my first language, I spoke English. I spoke it with an accent. I speak English with an accent. And they kind of held that against me. Like, well, he, you know, he's an American. Mm -hmm. Right away, I was different from them. And I, it took me a while as I grew up as a teenager. I started realizing, wait a minute, this is my own family, my own cousins, that they, they separated that. And I'm like, what? I thought I was just like you. Mm -hmm. And so that came to a big culmination for me during the shooting that I'm not from Mexico. I'm not, I'm not, I'm never, I wasn't born and raised there. And it, it makes a big difference. Uh, and, and dealing with the Mexican government, I, I just told Lou the story that the Mexican government for a long time had never heard me speak uh, English. Yeah. And one time I took them to a conference in Miami and I did a speech. And they, you know, obviously in English, and they heard me speak English, and they did not recognize me. When I got off the stage, they were looking at me like, oh, who are you? And, and they said, we didn't recognize that guy up there speaking English, because I had never spoken English to them. It's always in Spanish. And so my dad always said, you count as two people as being a, uh, being a bilingual person. So a lot of those issues, right, and the, and the cross-cultural, which I think made my career more successful because of the language ability. I was Absolutely. able to get things done in the human trafficking world and rescuing children and, and taking down bad guys. I think it was a plus in, in Central America and other places that I worked. But um, I just wanted to share that with you because that, that came up uh, during the, the presentation. And I think it's a, a big factor. But it's more important because I am a Hispanic, because I, uh, there's a lot of people like me that share the, the same sentiment that not just because, and I'll get a little political here, I'm not a Democrat. Uh, they, I'm, I'm a conservative. I happen to be a Republican since I was born. People ask me, when did you become a, uh, a conservative? I didn't become a conservative. I was born and raised that way. That's the only way I know how to be right. because those are the values that my parents instilled in me. Right. Absolutely. Well, man, no, look, this is, uh, like I said, listening to the story, and we could do that all over again. You know, we we didn't want to go too much in depth here. A lot of this is catching up. So let's finish up with this. So what are you doing now? So um, you kind of moved on from uh, the election. Um, you've obviously got this book out here. So what keeps you busy these days? What are you working on? Uh, a lot of consulting, a lot of consulting on border security right now, a lot of consulting of what's, uh, telling people of actually what's going on down there, taking some people actually down to the border and showing them firsthand this is the reality of what's happening. 
this is the what you're going to see ripple effect coming to the rest of the country, which actually is already happening. I'm doing a lot of that, a lot of uh, political consulting as well uh, in the same realm. Uh, I am trying to see what other avenues uh, with my book, what, where we go there, yep. hopefully turn it into something else um, and, and spreading the word and doing some public speaking. Sweet. Well, God, it's honor yeah. to have you back on here Maybe with I'll us. I'll jump on the on the DA Narcos. Uh, Come on, bro. Speak, speaking circuit. Come on with us. Come on with us. It's it's not as active as it used to be, but it's starting to pick up again. Well, it's starting to pick up. But no, look, I think I think that this is a message people got to hear. Obviously, you're in a very receptive area here, but just the 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 people that the questions we took from the audience and the true interest people had, and, and you know, just seeing the crowds in front of your table, man, you would have thought you were like freaking, uh, you know, some rock star. He was. He was. You were yesterday. I tell you what, the crowd loved you, and last night and today. When we've been talking to people, I ask them, "Hey, have you, have you read Victor's book?" Or and you know, and a lot of them will carry it over to our table where we're selling our book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, and I'll ask them, "What do you think about Victor's speech?" And they're like, "Oh my God, I can't believe he went through something like that." And then to be treated like that afterwards—that's the biggest thing. That's what we talked to Jay Dobbins about. That's what we talked to you about, Lou Velozzi about. Several guys. Is you know, even I had uh, Zach and I caught up for coffee. One of his guys uh, just here a couple weeks ago. I didn't realize how Zach—he's he, the Zach. Um, we can't even, we can't pronounce his yeah. last name. Zach Roshesky, <laughs> something like that. But he, him and his gang are the ones that took down Victor Booth, the Merchant of Death. Yeah. But I didn't realize that Zach um, was dealing with some issues at the agency too when he got out. So I mean, everybody's just been. Why is it that the good guys and good girls seem to get a raw deal sometimes? I don't know. Maybe that's just the way it is. But it's like, but go back to your thing real quick. I'll close out on this. You know, it's one of my lessons of leadership I've learned is that sometimes I end up learning more from a bad leader than I do a good leader because I learned here's all the things I never want to do and never want to be. Right. Absolutely. Talk about lessons learned there. Yeah. Uh, I know what not to do. That's. <laughs> Well, I know one thing not to do now is to hang out with us because I think the crowd's coming back out. you got to go sell some more books, buddy. Absolutely. Let's do it. So let's get back to it. Okay, so we're going to close this off. But, Victor, man, thank you. We're going to be here for another day, and uh, we'll tip a beer tonight, and we'll toast Jaime. And Thanks we'll say a toast back, in his honor. All right. Thanks, we'll see you. Thank All right, you. see you guys. All right, everybody, here we have another extinguished, I mean distinguished guest <laughs> that's been on the show before. In fact, he was episode number four, an ATF's agent, Journey into Darkness. And we want to say, man, the light is shining on him good because since he has been on our podcast, yep. he has got his book done. Yep. He has got some awards for a trailer or for a, a short that you guys have released, Statesboro Blues. And he is the man of the hour. It's no, it's nobody else but... Lou Veloze. Lou, we are back with you once again at the San Diego or the Southern California Gang Conference. Welcome, amigo. Thank you, guys. Once again, honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Now, our female listeners are going to want some new pictures of you, so you need to come up with something Did new. Did you say new or nude? No, either. 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 I'm sure they'd be happy either way. Oh, you were, you were such the candy man. Oh, he is so good looking. Oh, give me some more pictures. Well, I have a website. Just go to livelosey.com. There's plenty on it. Now, do you have a, do you have a pay pay-per-view site that goes with that, too? Uh, it's, it's forthcoming. It's well, forthcoming. Yeah. And he'll probably send you an email that says, let me send you my personal pictures. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it takes. And as you can tell, he has a very good sense of humor because if we piss him off, he's going to break us in two like a toothpick. Yeah, he's got. Yeah, his tattoos have got muscles. So, yeah. uh, so hey, but let's do let's do some catch up. So since that episode, I mean, it was very nice. Steve and I have talked about it because it was an anecdote. But tell us since our episode, you you got your book done, you got some offers on that, and tell us about Statesboro Blues because that's won some regional awards. Yeah, the, uh, the book came out. 
And uh, once again, thanks. You know, Steve actually helped with the uh, editing on my proposal, and uh, it got bought up right away by a publisher. And then uh, he also wrote the blurb that's on the back cover of the book. And Javier did my forward. And uh, so I had a company, a documentary company, approach me about doing a, a uh, documentary short on just one one aspect of the book, just a chapter of the book where we had hired a future defendant to work at one of our storefront operations. It was a very bizarre kind of scene. So we, we basically did it in about five or six hours, unrehearsed, no script. I just sat there and talked. Uh, they did some recreations. And as of right now, it's won uh, seven film festivals, including the Vegas Movie Awards. Wow. Um, uh, Southern Film Awards. And, uh, you know, it was going up against these fully produced mm -hmm. Hollywood-backed uh, documentaries. And, uh, you know, we kind of knocked it out of the park. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the awards we won were during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. era and, uh, you know, so they were virtual. We didn't get to go. But it's still good. Um, and so, yeah, the book came out, and uh, it got optioned by uh, Rick Yorn's company out in Hollywood. And they are... Can Looking for a, uh, a script writer right now for it. So let people know what an option is when so it gets optioned. They essentially bought my life story. Uh, they bought the rights to my book. Um, and so I'm under contract with them. And they are, uh, you know, the next step in that is they're, they're actually interviewing a guy named Brad Inglesby, who's he's a... He's a Hollywood writer. He just did a show called Mayor of Easttown. I don't know if anyone. Yeah, no, absolutely, that. with Kate Winslet yes. in there. Absolutely, uh, great, great. She was a detective. She learned that wow. Pennsylvania accent. That was the hardest tough that's right. part. Yeah. Yeah. So once I heard that, that that's the guy they're talking that to. That was I great went and stuff, it, man. And it was it was good. Uh, so you know, we'll see what. Ha Nothing happens fast in Hollywood, as Steve knows. Um, <laughs> but it's at least it's happening, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. The Absolutely. big question is, who's going to play you in the movie? I don't know. We were thinking Danny DeVito. <laughs> right? He's got to be Italian. <laughs> well, I, he's I got to say thing. I was thinking Pee Wee Herman. What well, the well, I, I don't think he's Italian. Yeah, Danny DeVito's got the range, right? He was Louis De Palma. Uh, he was, he was, yeah. I think or Joe Pesci. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, that uh, I was thinking Ray more. Ray Liotta's out. Yeah, he's Ray out. Unfortunately, man. <laughs> yeah, um, God bless him. But I'll tell you, uh, who, he's tied up on another role, but I thought would be good would be Dwayne The Rock Johnson. There you go. He'd have to put some hair on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. Hey, if he's interested, uh, give him my he's number. Got a he's got <laughs> some cats, man. He's we could tie him up some more. But sure. what, we, if we had him. the Rock's number, we'd have him on the show. <laughs> he's, he's actually doing Mel's uh, life story right now. Yes, yeah. yeah, and that's one of the reasons why we have not been able to get Mel on. Is uh, and you're talking about Mel. Mel Chance. There you go. I was yeah. with him last weekend. Uh, at you showed us the pictures of him. You, you you were even saying he's actually, Murph was showing one of the guys. He said, well, because they were trying to figure out who was the head of the Hell's Angels mm -hmm. in some place. Yeah. We said, Sonny Barger. No, it's this guy. I never heard of the guy that they were talking about. We said Mel Chancey. So he showed me a picture. You remember, did you see the one he showed you yeah. with Mel when he oh, looked like huge. a... If I'd seen that thing coming at me, I thought what it was the fucking devil had been reincarnated. <laughs> he looked like that. I know you guys interviewed my, my buddy Jay Dobbins. Uh -huh. Jay says... In his book, No Angel, you know, Jay met Mel when he was when Jay was in the Hell's Angels. Yeah. Uh, and he, he described Mel as 
the scariest man I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Uh, he's massive. Yeah. And, he, uh, he's got a, um, and if you're interested, take a look at him on Instagram. Uh, he posted a picture of his younger days recently, and he does. He just looks like pure evil. He's got muscles yeah. everywhere. And I tell everybody, listen to me. That's why they give cops sh uh, shotguns. That's right. Because yeah. that man would just hurt you. You well, need a tank for him, man. <laughs> he promised me that when he is no longer under obligation, with the rock yours will be the first podcast he does oh, oh fantastic fantastic you guys man. are gonna love it you're gonna yeah. love it and you know what and god bless him too and you know you talk about redemption there there's yes. a there's a life of redemption mm -hmm. right there mm -hmm. and it's rare I, I believe it's rare um you know for a lot of these guys because they get so deep into the life they can't turn themselves around but mel truly Found well, he, he's 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 he's, lived, he's walking the walk. He's just you hear a bunch of guys yep. talking it, but this guy has yep. for years walked the walk, and I think he's done good. But let's let, back to our regular scheduled podcast on Lou Velozzi. So, wh what's next? So you've got the options on there. Do you have any idea of a timeline? I know it's going to be a long one, but any idea have they identified a writer yet, or uh, no. you close to it? They're they're chasing this. Uh, I guess talking to this Brad Inglesby. Uh, they've got about fifty, a list of about fifty writers. So nothing happens quick, Morgan. So when they find a writer, uh, he's then, on for a while till they fire him and bring on another writer. Right. <laughs> Until and then someone has to actually complete at yeah. least you know a couple of episodes, uh, and then there'll be a pilot uh, that gets shot. Uh, but at least if all this happens, I'll, I'll start getting paid. So that'll be. That'll be a good thing. Right now, it's, yes, you feel like a nonprofit. It's <laughs> right. yeah. you know, instead yeah, exactly. of .com. Yeah. Exactly. But you know what? You know what? It just hit me. What you would be really good at doing it. You're talking about the ability to sit down. Um, I actually had the chance to meet Joe Kenda because he does that show, Homicide Hunter. He's become very popular. The way he got the role, because I, I ran into him at the Dallas airport. I see him walking. I said, that's Joe Kenda. Well, we found out, believe it or not, we actually knew some folks in common. And he said the way he got that is they got a thing through an agent. So he just sat down and he was just talking, just telling in his story and he gets up he says yeah they're not interested they go shit we were blown away he did exactly what you did just sit in the chair unscripted and just tell the story and that's actually what kenda does on almost all of those things it's not there's no script he tells the story then they go find the actors and the people to backstop it and build the episode around his memory and his stories it's a way to do it when i uh and i've done a few in these for some of these channels that have talked to me about you know coming on as a host or a narrator and they give me something to read, I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. When I read it, I'm, I'm just terrible. Mm -hmm. It just sounds like I'm reading something. But when I can just sit here and talk, you know, about what I've done, or, or yeah. I, I can just flow naturally. So It's easy. It's, I mean, it's a lot easier, a lot I should easier, say. for sure. Yeah, and so the other thing you're working on, too, is your speaking business. So um, we actually were just having a chat in the hallway, too, because it's that transition from being a federal agent now to being you're a businessman. It's a rough transition. Like being a Fed was easier. It wasn't it? Yeah. I didn't, like we were saying, I didn't have to hustle. Uh, there were so many criminals out there, it was easy pickings. <laughs> yep. Fishing in a barrel. You know, uh, in the business world, you got to hustle. Uh, nobody yep. want, nobody's wanting to write a check. And I think I think the state of Florida and I are getting ready to go head to head because I can't figure out how to do my taxes down there. Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think I'm a few months behind. Florida, I, thought. <laughs> I know it. I know. Well, it. there's no state income tax, so well, right. business tax. Yeah. You, you still got to pay those. Yeah. So. Oh well. There you go. Welcome to Florida. Yeah, no state income tax, but we get you with property tax, business tax, uh, this well, tax. Listen, if I go to prison, y'all bring me cigarettes because I can trade them like money. <laughs> it's like currency in jail. Yeah, you can. I watched a documentary on that once. <laughs> yeah. And we'll get Steve, our buddy from the uh, Department of Corrections, to drone you in some cigarettes. There and you some go. Things. Now you're talking. So um, 
So anyway, catching up, but how are things for you, though? Because when we talk to, I mean, you've been in a recovery process with your marriage, with your uh, everything else, but how are you doing? Great. Um, you know, life is good. My, my boy is uh, college age. We've been on the circuit, you know, mm -hmm. southeast doing all the tours, SEC schools, and uh, um, yeah, life is good as far as uh, the home life goes. And you know, it's constant. I'm constantly uh, still making up for lost time. You know, you're never gonna, you're never gonna totally catch up, right? right. I mean, you know, those the soccer games and the, the recitals and all that. You know, when when you miss those, you miss them. Uh, when you weren't there for anniversaries and all that, you, you weren't there. But uh, you know, the Lord. The Lord always gives you a chance to uh, to make up, and uh, I work hard every day to make these things up. And it's it's uh, he's, a process. He's gracious and forgiving. For, well, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, I'm proof of that. Um, so let's talk about, but you're down here too. What are you going to talk about tomorrow? What are you going to present to all these studs down here? What is Lou Velosi going to tell them? So I'm not going to get up there tomorrow and, and try to give some instruction on, you know, how to investigate gangs, which is what I did my whole career. But, you know, if the, these guys, if they're here at this conference, they already know. Uh, my presentation, which is kind of based off of my book, goes deeper into how to do your job while maintaining your priorities. Because a lot of us, we go through our careers and we lose our priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's so easy to do because we, we believe in our heart what we're doing is righteous, and it is. But we forget about faith, family, and friends, about our, our real priorities. Yep. And we forget that how important it is to go home and not miss the recitals and the baseball games uh, because those are, those are things you'll never get back. So my presentation is geared more toward go to work, work as hard as you can, keep your priorities, go home, and you know, give as much energy and enthusiasm and effort into your marriage, into your friendships, into your parenthood, as you do into chasing bad guys. You know, and here in the, at the conference, there's uh, a lot of young officers. There are some some pretty rookie officers here, believe it or not. They've come up and introduced themselves to us over at the table, and um, and they're all. One guy I was talking to today was I was telling you about. It, he was interested in, in becoming a DEA agent. I told him you got to have a degree, and he's like, "Well, what about ATF?" And I told him to come and talk to you, but. Um, the priorities are so screwed up. You think you're doing the right thing by your family. And we talked about this yesterday when we were doing our interviews is, is in my opinion, our priorities should be God, family, and the job. But the truth is we reverse that. The job always comes first. And then the family and God kind of compete for second place, you know, and, and that's why I say, it, it, you know, I'm not going to uh, turn, turn evangelist here on you, but that's why I make a big deal about being a Christian and being a believer and God's grace and forgiveness because he has given us a second chance. I mean, all of us have been in involved in stuff that we really don't want to talk about to other people throughout or our you, careers. You see things that you just, there's exactly. no one seeing them. Exactly. So yeah. um, I thought, I, honestly, I thought I better did a better job with my two girls, you know, make, making their different sporting events and dance and all that kind of stuff. And here in retirement, they're reminding me about how much I missed. Wow. And I didn't realize it till I'm retired. And so, like next week, Javier, I'm sorry to make this about me and Javier. I don't mean to. Right. I'm just trying to get a point across. Uh, Javier's going to go to Hollywood and film. We're, we're working on a new documentary. And they, they're telling me I have to be there. And I said, no, I don't, because my oldest daughter's flying in from D.C. to Florida. And she's going to spend two weeks with us. And I am not coming. And you know what? They said, we'll get you in July. 
So and it, it could probably be like that our whole lives if we just if had you our just, priorities straight. And the hard part, you know, it's saying no for guys like you, guys like me. It's hard to say no. Hey, I need you to do this, man. You always want to be the. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, we'll take it on. It's got you get this mission focus, mission first. I want to. I'll do it. Yeah. If it's going to get done, um, you know, we're going to do it. But then, like you say, it's at the price of missing Christmases, missing. And now my work didn't take me out of state and out of country. You know, when I was doing it first, like you guys did. But even then, like when you're working weekends, you can't go to the ball games because you're, you know. Sometimes it's outside your control because if you're like the duty detective, if you get called to a homicide, you're gone for two days. I mean, that's yeah. just the way it goes, you yeah. know. But still, it's 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 rough, and like you say, a lot of it's catching up. So let's catch up with you a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, this is so. depressing. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, you're some. <laughs> we lived on bad guy time, mm -hmm. and and when you're on bad guy time, you're always waiting around for the bad guy, and they're never on time. Right? That's a good so point. When we would, I knew if I wasn't at the deal, that it wouldn't go down right. I knew that in my mind, right? Right. I had to be there because I was a control freak, and I knew if I wasn't there, things wouldn't happen correctly. So, you know, immediately, bad guy time, you know, if the deal's set up for two in the afternoon, it'll happen maybe at seven or eight at night. Yep. Right? And <laughs> yep. everyone's waiting around, everybody hates you, right? Everyone else is missing soccer games and all that, and they want to go home. Uh, but you wait for the bad guy, and you're on bad guy time. And yep. who, who pays the price for that? Your family. Yep. Right. We call it a Hummer. It's the case is just humming along. <laughs> yeah, well, let me tell you, Lou's on Lou Velozzi time because yesterday morning, Lou got in a couple nights ago, and so yesterday morning, I'm walking up to the office. We're heading over here to the conference. Lou shows up in his jammy pants. That was this morning. That was this morning. Oh, that's right. That was this morning, yeah. Shows up in his jammy pants. Is here all askew. He's going, where's the fucking coffee? There's <laughs> fucking coffee in the room ain't cutting it for it me. It was rough. Yeah. <laughs> that is the worst coffee I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Oh, my God. I tried, to, I, tried to, I tried to gulp a little bit of it down. You know, get ready. It's like, oh. Oh my God! Well, you couldn't put enough sweetener in it. You couldn't put that uh, creamer crap but in it. Was it so funny, but it def Lou is definitely on Lou Velozzi time because your hair was just like a skew. You had your jammy pants on, little flip flops, and you look like you're just wandering out of a mental institution. You go, "Where's the coffee? Where's the coffee?" My, my whole career, I was like I said, I was on bad guy time. Well, it's time for me now. There yeah, you it's, go. It's me there time. You go. Velozzi time. That's well, you, and I want you to realize when you were saying that he wasn't smiling. So no. when we turn that recorder off, I'm, I'm running out of here because. <laughs> Uh, which is your good knee again, Lou? Yeah, right. <laughs> no, hey, so, but, uh, so where do you think, you know, I, seriously, I think that's one of the, to me, the storefront, and, and let's talk a little bit about the book now, too, because it's out, we have it up on our website, but it came out after um, our podcast episode with you, which has been, I mean, 10 months ago. I didn't realize you were episode four. He was episode wow. four, man. Wow. He was our first two-part episode, too, by the way. Sweet. So Sweet. you were you were episode one, one episode. George, George. Young was part, was episode two. Pam, Pam Barnum, Barnum was episode three. Was he was one. our Pam, that was a good She's one. good, isn't yeah. she? Uh, he was our first two-parter. Well, and, and in case our listeners don't remember, you guys, how I met you originally was I got to be a guest. Javier and I were guests on your podcast. Twice. End of Watch. Yep. That's right. Absolutely, yeah. man. And we did End of Watch here with uh, Bootsy and Sal. Yep. Um, we did That's it right. here recently. And look, he's got a book out, too, your partner. just got Ruffian. Yep. yep. Great book, by the way. Great book. He Thank says you. what needs to be said in that book about modern-day policing. Um, just a great book. And, and Kevin, if you're listening to this, Put a smile on, brother. Yeah. Jesus you, Christ. You look like Chill a grumpy out, old man, man. man. Yeah, <laughs> Trying to be a tough guy. Yeah. We love you, pal. Kevin, like, if, it, if it just changed one letter, we could be on a show because it would be the, the Kevin Rogan show. But, That's right. Yeah. He did challenge Joe Rogan to a fight, and he was billing it Grogan versus Rogan. 
There you go. And, uh, yeah, but Joe Rogan never did. Uh, he didn't uh, buy it. Didn't huh? It was a publicity stunt. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, it didn't <laughs> work. He got killed. <laughs> hey, well, but, but tell us about the book now. So how long has the book been out? book's been out about uh, two and a half months, and uh, sales are going great, um, especially every time I do a conference like this. They, nice. They really go up. Sales have been great. Um, you know, I really put the book out in the hopes that it was going to get optioned for a, uh, you know, one of these Netflix type series and, yep. and it happened. So I'm very happy with that. Um, I'm also in talks with Discovery Network right now. They want to do a, a uh, they want to do a show about a real, um, well, they were all real, but a storefront conducted by a local police department that I kind of narrate and host, yeah. help, and I help them set it up, and then they'll do one, uh, you know, on a smaller level than the ones I did. You know what it reminds me of? That the Catch a Predator series that right. they used to do, right? So you have somebody come, someone sting in like yeah. that, yeah. You know, and if you can get, you know, we, we were doing some big ones. We were getting 300 guns, uh, but if you can get 10, 15 guns off the street mm -hmm. in a few months. You'll probably save some lives. It'll be good, good entertainment, and uh, some lives will be saved. And you know, because that goes back to the philosophy you talked about. Because uh, I remember, and we were joking about this, but it's the case where nobody could get into the guy, not even the FBI. And the way you got into the guy was a Crown Royal bag versus yeah. full, with full, full of gold fillings yeah. from real Bloody teeth. teeth. Yeah. <laughs> blood all, yeah. But 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 you made a point though, and this is why I thought I, I'm 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 just I'm saddened that ATF didn't continue this on because you spent so much time and effort to get one guy right, but you spend the same time and effort in a storefront operation. You can get 50 guys. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible results. Uh, you know, to me, the big result was, you know, if you, we took 430 guns in the first one off the street, crime guns, uh, and locked up 100 defendants. So if there's a few things about the operation that you're not happy with, change those few things, but don't just... Yeah, don't kill the project. Yeah, don't take it away. Well, you don't kill out the water. What is it? The baby, baby whatever. With the yeah. But yeah. you know what it hurts at the end of the day? It hurts the community. It hurts That's the citizens. Yep. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. I mean, it hurts you professionally, but at the end of the day, if there's another homicide that could have been prevented because we should have taken the gun out of the guy's hands and we didn't. Yeah. Well, that's that's the oath we took is to protect and defend. You know, and you're out there doing your job, and, and because somebody, you know, is it jealousy? Somebody didn't get enough credit who's never really faced any danger in their career? They're, you know, they're desk bound in a headquarters position, or not that I'm getting uh, mad about that or anything, but <laughs> <laughs> I've seems to happen a lot. People. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, look, but let's talk about tomorrow, too, on your session. How long does that go? How long have you got it set up for? Is that one couple hours? So he's asked me to do four. <laughs> what? All right. So a Friday afternoon with a thousand cops who've been in sitting in chairs all week. By two o'clock, they're checking out. Yeah, I got to close out in four hours. But so my plan is to condense my presentation into an action-packed hour and forty-five minutes. Yeah. And just knock them out of their seats and kick them loose early. Let me tell you what, I've never been to a conference where somebody got mad because they got out on the last day early. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I was doing some training at a police conference one time, and it's Orlando, Florida, and it's a Friday afternoon, and I'm the 2 o'clock speaker. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And there are four people in the room, and I'm going, well, look, okay, I'm down here to do the training. So I start training, and then after about five minutes in, guy number one gets up and leaves. Okay, there's still three people left. After another five minutes, girl number two gets up and leaves. Pretty soon, guy number three looks at me, just shakes his shoulders and gets up, and there's one guy left in the room. So I'm like, I finished my training. I said, well, look, what kept you here? Was it the exciting content?
content? Was it, you know, my delivery? I mean, did you just, what did you like? He goes, no, I'm the three o'clock speaker. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I said, sorry, pal. Oh, man. That's hilarious. Yeah, well, I'll be, I'll be speaking faster than any rapper you've ever heard tomorrow. Don't worry. The Lou rap. Give That's us, right. give, have you got, have you, by the way, have you got your own rap song yet? Not yet. Uh, we're working on that, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a country music guy, though. So. There you right, go. Well, yeah, well, you know, well, of course, that's the old joke, right? What happens when you play a country music record backwards? Oh, you I get your dog, you get your right. car, you get your yeah, wife right. back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait right. a minute, who wants that? Oh, yeah, never right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Now, hey, just real quickly, but who is, who is uh, what's your favorite, uh, who are a couple of your favorite country music artists? All right, well, George Jones, hand down. Hands yeah. Down, the greatest ever. The possum. Yeah, the possum. And then uh, below that, I would put uh, Waylon Jennings. Merle Haggard. Man, you're old time. Yeah. This is and old school yeah. stuff. David Allen Coe. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. So actually, believe it or not, a buddy of mine, a guy named Chad Jeffers, is Carrie Underwood's guitarist, has been for like the last 10 years. He used to play with Kenny G, Keith Urban. Well, you, you know, uh, uh, Carrie Underwood has a crush on me. She just doesn't know it. I can see that. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> You know, Steve, that sounds very uh, similar. Yeah. Very similar to uh, Kiss the Girls movie that we just did. Oh, no, These no, girls no, are in no, love no, with no. me. They just don't know yeah, it. Yeah. it does, we just did right. that on our Patreon review. We did Kiss the Girls with Morgan Freeman, and the opening scene says, These girls are all in love with me. They just don't know yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Creepy. Okay, Creepo. I guess subliminally, that's where that thought came from. Yeah. No more weird movies. Inside voice, Steve. Inside. Hey, so if you could, if you could like paint the picture of what you'd like to do, what what would keep you jazzed what would you love to wake up every morning and do uh honestly and what consumes my mind uh and i'm sure steve can you know because he's already been through it is i want to make this series uh you know and so part of my contract with this company is that i'm a producer slash consultant mm -hmm. and i will be on set so you know for me like the ultimate happiness will be when i'm in the trenches, you know, with whatever, the writer, director, and on, on scene, and I'm advising them as to, you know, how it really happened and, and what they can do to make it better and more exciting uh, every day. That's, I want to make this series. I want to get it out. Uh, cool. That, that'll, you know, I always say unfinished business. That's actually what I call my presentation because I feel like my career in, a, in somewhat is unfinished business because I had about, I had another five years in me of working undercover. Um, you know, it got cut short. My own fault, but it got cut short. So I do feel if I can get this series out, for me personally, that kind of puts a lid on it. And it, it completes that circle. So that is, that's my dream. That's what I want to have. Want to have. Well, too, he's, I don't know if I've even told you this, Morgan, but uh, Lou came up with an idea and invited Javier and I in on it, and we won't disclose it because our agent is dealing with it now, Daniel. But uh, Does it involve dancing in thongs in the middle of the night in the, some island? No, but if we get to that point, we'll call you. <laughs> Dude, I, I can rock the banana hammock, trust me. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Now that's creepy. <laughs> I, just got a, I just got a picture. It's, all, it's a podcast, oh, man. you got to do yeah, mental picture. Right. We apologize to all our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> for all the starving pygmies in China. Amen. Uh, hey, and you know what we always say? We never take ourselves serious here, folks. Oh, no, so this is, this is all about you having can. some good times hey, here. And, and so but continuing on with that series, but you also, in the interim right now, you kind of picked up another little gig, right? Did you want to talk about that? Uh, the speaking gig? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I signed on with a company called Eagle Rise that is owned and operated by Jason Redman and his, his wife, Erica. 
And, uh, you know, Jason was a Navy SEAL, um, and he was, he was shot pretty bad. He took AK-47 rounds, took one to the face, and uh, he's, he's been out there. He's got a great book called Trident, and uh, he's an incredible speaker, incredible presentations. Uh, Jay Dobbins was, was one of the speakers, and he's the one who brought me into the fold. And uh, so I'm scheduled to go to Cali, Colombia, uh, for my first wow. one. And then that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, hopefully I, you know, get in and do a decent job, and they'll keep me going on that with that network. Well, when you get down to Cali, tell them you know a couple of buddies of ours, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are those names I should drop. Or? Yeah, those are the two good guys that took down the Cali cartel. Ooh, uh, well, season yeah. three of Dark Mode. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should mention that. But you know what? You're about as big as them because. Between all you guys, none of you guys are under six feet, and you're going to Columbia and trying to blend in. Please. Yeah, we don't, yeah. we don't blend in too well. Um, oh, shoot, there's something else. Oh, so for our listeners out there that are involved in the law enforcement profession or are hosting conferences, and it doesn't have to be law enforcement. If you're looking for speakers, Lou Velozzi's available. He's, I mean, get his book and check it out. The name of your book is? Storefront Sting, an ATF agent's life undercover. There you go. So take a look at that book. You can order it on Amazon. I yep. think I saw it on Amazon. Do you have a website they can go to also? www.louvelosi.com. Uh, I'm telling you, it's, it's a moving story. This man, you've seen his pictures. You know he's a mountain of a man, and he does not hold back. He lays it all out there. And I, I think I told you this when I was reading through your, your uh, uh, outline there on the book that I'm shocked because typically someone in law enforcement doesn't open up the way you have. So it, he puts it all out on the table there. Uh, it's a great motivational speaking opportunity. You know, help this guy get started here. He's, he's getting on a roll here. He's dying to do this. His wife's about ready to kick him out because yep. he's got no income coming in. Yep, she's about done with it. <laughs> he keeps telling her checks in the mail, baby. Right. <laughs> from the, the three biggest lies. Yeah. I'm here to help. Yeah. It was make her very happy. Get me, yeah. get me out of the house. But seriously, I'm, I'm telling you, I've heard Lou's story. We were in Vegas just a few weeks ago and, and oh, you yeah. spoke at the conference there. Yeah, he was saying we've got to speak the same conference. It was Steve Cook. It was yep. his yep. his training, and uh, very. I had to get up and leave because I just wanted to make comments and give you a hard time. But it's the worst thing to do to a speaker in front of people you don't know. It's to heckle right. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they don't understand. And it's not because I'm trying to embarrass you. It's just we've got that kind of friendship, and yeah. it's always busting chops. And sure. um, hey, so let me ask you a final kind of philosophical thing here too, because uh, we did a thing just on our Patreon channel. We talked a little bit about Uvalde and the school shooting there, but I'm not. This is not political. It's more about. I want to go back to what you did because I think what you did. Um, could have an impact, too, on stuff or, or even looking at it. But I think one of the ways we have to address a problem of gun violence is getting guns out of the hands of criminals because, by definition, they're criminals. If, if everybody followed the law, there wouldn't be any law-breaking because homicide has been outlawed for I can't tell you how many years, mm -hmm. robbery, right? If it was just simply against the law... Um, then that would be good enough, but it's not. People break the law. That's why criminals do. How big of an impact, or, I mean, how much of a loss has there been of opportunity to stop some of this stuff? Not that you would stop everything, or Uvalde. We're not trying to make a comparison, but the lack of things like storefront operations and these UC operations where you take guns out of the hands of legitimate bad guys and girls. I mean, that's had to have an impact, a detrimental impact on stopping crime and stopping gun violence and stopping violent crime. It is so hard to quantify, Morgan. It, right. The, the impact it has, uh, you know, it, it's at least manageable. Whereas, you know, I don't know if, if our battle with drugs is manageable anymore. Uh, <laughs> I don't it, think so. It's out of control, but it's still manageable 
there are laws on the books that are not being enforced. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. We are not enforcing our gun laws. And politicians keep talking about more gun laws, but we're not enforcing the ones we have. We have plenty of gun laws. When we do these long-term operations, whether they're undercover or other types of operations, and we're taking guns out of the hands of criminals, it has an impact. It has a huge impact that lasts, that goes down the line in all these communities. And, and for whatever reason, we've stopped doing them. We're not doing them anymore. So the answer, my answer to your question is, it's immeasurable, you know, what we did, the impact that it has in the future of a community is huge. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I talked about this on the, on the podcast last time, but I, I can tell you how I measured that. The uh, storefront we did in Statesboro, Georgia, which is a college town. I, I don't know the population, but it's not a big city. Yeah, it's not big. Not big at all. We took 265 guns, okay, crime, crime guns, off the street in a nine-month operation. Two years later, the Statesboro detective uh, who worked that case with us called me, and he said, brother, I just want to tell you that our drug unit has nothing to do. Our gang, not, not gang, they had like a gang slash gun unit, and it's probably like two or three guys, very small department. Their stats are, are terrible. There's, no one is selling guns, no one is selling drugs in our city. They're all afraid that it's either an informant or a fed. Crime has gone down by 85%. Holy cow. That's two years after our operation. So that's the kind of impact these operations can have. Granted, that's a small city, but if you if you do a bunch of them in a big city, it'll be the same kind of impact. So, for whatever reason, whatever they've stopped, they need to start up again, and it, it is preventative. Well, and the other thing too is, but they stop the right. They don't do the UC. Um, not, not very much. No. I mean, it's like your the, your UC um, uh, courses, you know, and developing use turning agents into UCs was, I think, arguably one of the best, yeah. you know, in the whole government yes. system, right? And they don't do that anymore. And it's just like, I'm amazed because here's a tool at their disposal that can actually have a real impact on crime. And that's what I wanted to ask you. Why? Because you mentioned it and it triggered it. Why did you call it Statesboro Blues? We named it after the great Allman, Allman Brothers song, Statesboro Blues. Okay. Yeah, which was actually written by Blind Willie McTell from Statesboro, Georgia who was an all-black blues guy. And the Allman Brothers, who were based out of Macon, Georgia, mm -hmm. covered it, Statesboro Blues. And that, that's why we called it Statesboro okay. Blues. Okay. I, wow. I didn't know if there was a tie-in to, you know, your operation there, if it was that, but it was just more about the song, huh? Yeah, more about the song. Yeah. Uh, well, look. Very I, cool. Yeah, you know, I, it's one of those things. It, I think it has an impact. And look, it, in this time right now, we have to put all options on the table. And to me, a storefront operation yeah. that, like you say. And the other thing, too, I loved what you said, too. We'll finish up with this. It put, it sowed the seeds of distrust in the minds of even the criminals because they didn't know who to trust anymore. It's like, are you a Fed? Are you a yep. CI? Are you a CI? Are you a Fed? Am I getting played again? Mm -hmm. 85% it, reduction, though. I mean, why that's not national news? It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just if I could say one last thing. No, I'm when, sorry, we're done. Right. Okay. No. <laughs> well, you turn off the tape cord. I'm going to say it anyway. Okay. When we were running the streets, at least 
we were keeping the bad guys looking over their shoulder, mm-hmm. right? We, we could say that. You know, we, we couldn't shut down crime, but we were keeping them looking over their shoulders. I don't think they're even looking over their shoulders anymore. Nah, I don't either. I agree. It's wide open. That's, you know, this can carry over not only into the gun violence, but the drug issues in the United States and legalization and all the other stuff that's going on. We've, we've gotten so permissive in our society that it's like anything you want to do is okay. It's okay. Very little deterrent. Yes. Uh, see, so. too many people look at the news and they say, well, crime is it like the homicide rates increase, and they equate it to percentage points. So I'm going, no, that equates to lives. If you had 100 yes. homicides one year and now you have 200 homicides, mm-hmm. there's 100 lives that were needlessly, no lives should have been lost, but there's 100 additional lives now needlessly lost because you didn't have the enforcement in place to save their life. And you take that 100, you take Philadelphia, you take Chicago, you take L.A., you take Seattle, um, you know, San Francisco. Anywhere USA. Yeah. Yep. And it's just like you said, we got the laws on the books. They're just not being enforced That's by right. the courts. Well, I think we ought to just outlaw crime, and that'll solve everything. You guys well, hey, there's, a, there's an idea. All right, we'll just pass <laughs> one law that says it's illegal to do anything illegal. There you go. And ask everyone to hand their guns in. That'll solve it. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, s- yeah. spoken like a true ATF. Because we know all the criminals, <laughs> right. they'd be the first in line. Right. Yeah. All right, well, hey, look, this has been great. <laughs> this is our catch-up here, so... Continued best luck. I know. I see you've got your little uh, square. That's right. Um, That's it, bro. Plugged into your phone. Ready for a sale. You got to do. Let's not keep you from capitalism, <laughs> Commandant. Let's go out and sell some more books. Hey, Lou, right. brother, thank you so much. And and uh, I meant to say this earlier, and it just slipped my mind. But I have the honor of introducing you tomorrow. Awesome. And you don't know what I'm going to say just yet. Ooh, so we'll see how that goes. I'm just trying to say, even my wife listens to Game of Crimes. Loves. She loves your podcast. Oh, sweet. Tell her we said thank you. All right, man. God bless you, brother. Thanks, Lou. Stay safe, brother. Thank you. We are back at the Southern California Gang Conference. And you know what, Steve? What's that? Surprise upon surprise I upon know, surprise. And if you folks, you longtime players uh, of the podcast will realize, remember, episode one was Murph and JP talking about the capture of Pablo Escobar. And so did what did we do for episode two, Steve? We brought in our first bad guy, our former, first former bad guy. Who was Pablo's business partner. That yep. Johnny Depp, by the way, Johnny Depp's in the news right now. Yeah. He won his 15 million dollar lawsuit yeah. against ever heard he played this guy in the movie blow none right. other than george and i we have to get clarity okay is it jung or young 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 george young there and you guess go. who's saying that let, let everybody know who you are well my name is craig Belinsky. i work for the united states probation parole officer in the southern district of california there you go and uh and your claim to fame with george is i was his probation parole officer when he was released into the community. And so, you were the one that yanked his parole that first time, right? Because he traveled out of state without permission? Actually, no. So, his, <laughs> oh, so George was wrong. Yeah. No, George was wrong. Yes, George was wrong. I could have yanked his parole at one point. but I mean, I mean, parole, we, I said probation. Probation, yeah. yeah we, actually, it's, a, it's supervised release, but that's just a technical. It's a kinder, gentler yeah. term. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, George was originally released up in the Eastern District of California up in the Sacramento area. And that's where he was booted back for some technical violations, which he may have explained to you. It sounds like he already did traveling out of district. Yeah, without permission. Ingesting some alcohol excessively. George would do something like that? (laughs) George was a partier, wasn't he? Yes, he was, yeah. yeah. Uh, Now, what year was that? So he was originally released uh, 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and actually seemed to do, you know, sail smoothly until around the summer of 2016. And uh, ultimately uh, was taken back to court on these violations that we just noted. And he was resentenced uh, by the judge in beginning of, two, uh, Jan beginning of 2017. Um, went back to prison for a brief period of time. Then he was released back into the community March 2017. That's when I assumed supervision of the case. So he came back to Southern California. Yeah, he released down here in the Southern District. Uh, San Diego. Yeah. What was he doing his time at when he was released the second time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to guess, you know, he only went back for three months, so they probably kept him local. Okay. He probably wasn't shipped anywhere in the Bureau of Prisons. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then would you guys then contract out locally then to keep people in county jails and stuff? Occasionally, yeah. How yeah. they do it up there in the Eastern District, I'm not very familiar, but yeah, we do do that uh, okay. across the nation. Hey, and just real quickly before we get dive into too much into George. It's interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit about the role of U.S. probation and parole. I mean, because you're federal, you're fed, you're sworn, yeah. carry a gun, carry a badge, yeah. um, got the love of Jesus in your pretty blue eyes. That's a Clint Eastwood line, if you guys didn't recognize it. That's oh, from... Lord. <laughs> Watch it, Craig. Watch it. So what's a typical day like for uh, for you, or, you know, for traditional? Because, I mean, I got to imagine with reduced workforce and stuff, you got to be handling a ton of people. Yeah. Well, interestingly, the uniqueness of the Southern District is we live, we live and work 10, 15, 20 miles north of the busiest port of entry in the world. San Ysidro? San Ysidro Port of Entry. 80% mm -hmm. of the domestic drugs annually come through that port of entry down there. Wow. And they make their way, a lot of them up to Chicago and get dispersed, mm -hmm. you know, nationally, internationally. So, yeah, to say that we're busy is is an understatement. I mean, we we, we have a lot of workload here. Um, and a job, you know, it's kind of like the typical type of thing that you hear in, in a lot of law enforcement agencies. It's different every day. Yeah. So I've, I've bounced around a bit. I started my Fed career in Phoenix, and I transferred to our Philadelphia office. And all along the way, I've always wanted to specialize and have been fortunate to specialize in gangs, organized crime cases. So... Uh, I took a little bit of a break in service after Philly. I lived overseas for a while. I mentioned to you earlier, I was in Peru for a little while in Thailand. And Germany. And, well, Germany was a, a product of the people I met while yeah. living overseas. And, yeah. So what prompted you to take a break? Yeah, what, okay, so I, uh, honestly, I wasn't finding the value in the job that I was finding before. Mm -hmm. And so you mean kind of like burnout too? I don't know if it was burnout, burnout. or you just didn't feel like what you did made a difference. I always believe that it made it, it made a difference, and it still does. But like just that rotating door that we see, the yeah, police going in and out. Yeah, you know, and it's frustrating. It is. It's frustrating. And at the time, quite frankly, I was in my early thirties. I had no mortgage, no kid, no significant other. Um, Go see the world. Yeah. I took a trip down to, to Peru to hike the Inca Trail up to Machu Picchu. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. I got injured on the trail the second day in, turned around, went back down to Cusco, Peru. Cusco, Peru is the hub of the tourist industry for the Machu Picchu mm -hmm. um, sites and things like that. Yeah, and that day in Cusco, I went out that night, dinner, drinks, ended up meeting two guys, one from Peru, one from England. They were two friends, and to this day... Those two friend, those two guys are two of my best friends. Nice. So, 
I, I extended my vacation down there by two weeks, and I just started developing this plan to sell everything I had and move to Peru. Wow. So I, I went back to Philly. <laughs> this Talk sounds about like a, a George change. Young move. <laughs> <laughs> George loved that story, by the way. I shared that story yeah, with him. Yeah. You know George and that deep, oh, that's yeah. such a great story, Craig. You know, yeah. but, uh, <clears throat> no, I went back to Philly. I sat down, talked to my chief, started explaining what I'm going to do. He looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> I'll bet. You know? But no, he supported me. And uh, actually, you know, along the way, he and I stayed in touch, and, and, and he and I are actually friends to this day, the chief of Philly. So was it like you quit and then came back, or were you like on an extended uh, so, like leave of absence? So what he did is he gave me a year leave of absence. And what that did, that, that allowed me to maintain my health insurance. That's what I was going to say, maintain your status and yeah. everything, and retirement. Then, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, when I finally returned to federal service a few years later, some of that, that, that time in that year leave of absence was credited towards my my years of service. Oh, cool. Very brief, but yeah. nonetheless, yeah. Um, so it helps you. Know, mm -hmm. time, so. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, I just, and that's exactly what I did. I resigned and sold everything I had and moved down to Peru. And, uh, wow. Traveled the desert, the Andes, the entire coastline up in the middle of Ecuador. Came wow. Down through the rainforest and jungle. Then yeah. what brought you back? Uh, George Young. <laughs> no, no, I just, you know, I actually came back to the States with a return ticket to go back to Peru. So I came back in the summertime, stayed a couple months, and in that two-month period, a brother of a friend had returned from teaching English overseas in Thailand. Mm -hmm. I started talking to him, and I knew nothing about Thailand at the time, but it just sounded intriguing. So uh, I went through the process he went through to get employed with the corporation over there that sponsors these, you know, these teachers to come over. I have my master's in education. And, uh, yeah, like I was selected and off I went to Thailand and spent almost three years there. Holy cow. Yeah, I, I taught at uh, preschool, high school, and a university in my last, in the last couple of years. Teaching. No wonder you and George got along, man. You both are like free spirits. You yeah, know, you're, exactly, that's exactly yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah, George, yeah, you know, George was very candid with me. You know, he, uh, he shared a lot of stories with me, and uh, that was a unique working relationship, which developed into, you know, a continued relationship even after he got off paper. So, yeah. but speak to that for a minute, because you have to kind of have limits on the relationships you have with the people that you supervise. Right. <laughs> the yeah. kindler general word, right? What are those limits? I mean, where do you where do you draw the line? Is it different for different people, or are there clear things that says thou shalt not do X, and that's it? Well, I mean, we have discretion, you know, but I mean, meeting someone for a drink after work, things like that, of course, I mean, that's clearly... You know, well, plus you boundaries. violate him for having a drink. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although <laughs> George, wanted, George wanted to desperately. He, yeah. he wanted to all the time. But, uh, no, I mean, I, look, part of what I do when I work with you know, gang members and more sophisticated criminals is, you know, I, I attempt to build rapport, treat them respectfully. Mm -hmm. And you get this back in return. So I don't mind sharing bits and pieces of personal information because, it, you know, it, it supports building that communication and, right. and people being candid and honest with you if they screw up, you know, I mean, you get more of a response when people kind of begin to realize that you're a real person too, Yeah, that you have a personal life, you know, you share these type of things and then you're going to get someone more candidly coming to you and say, Hey man, look, I screwed up. Um, and and self-report and, you know, just guess, be upfront. Well, I mean, sometimes it's a self-report. Sometimes I have some evidence and when I ask them, you know, they're going to be more direct, yeah. you know, when you kind of build that type of rapport. Not all the time. 
but right. it's helpful. So uh, when you say you deal with a lot of uh, gang members and stuff like that, are you um, – is that because they – uh, in a sense, assigned you to that area, or do you guys have disciplines where it says, "Look, we have certain um, uh, folks, agents, you know, parole officers who specialize in these things, and you go get training so that you can manage them differently than other." I, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill criminals, because you know, but somebody's just doing time because they got an auto theft beef versus, yeah. man, you're a hardcore Aryan Brotherhood or MS-13 mafia, you know, yeah. mafia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and exactly as you described it. So, I developed a, an interest in gang members, organized crime early in my career. Um, so yeah, there are trainings such as we're at now that you know kind of help you build that resume. Mm -hmm. And there are positions within US probation role where you do have caseloads that specifically are designated to concentrate on these type of criminal populations. So when you come to the table and you interview for some of these positions, having some training under your belt, obviously expressing interest, working with some of the officers that were there before you, you know, this builds a, you know, the skills and the knowledge, really, who's who in the zoo. You want to build those collateral law enforcement contacts, you know, in the cities you, you live in, with other agencies, because, you know, these gang detectives and these detectives that are investigating organized crime, these are the ones with, the, with their ears to the ears to the ground. Yeah. Know? So this, this is very helpful. But, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, we, we have specialty areas of criminal populations where we apply for and interview for caseloads that deal exactly, you know, specifically with those, those offenders. Cool. Yeah. Well, so let, let's let's talk about the man of the hour. But, and as we all know, George. I mean, I think we were look, we were checking. Steve and I were checking. Murph and I were. I think we got the last interview with George. I mean, I know he'd done some other stuff, but I think because when we interviewed him, he was he was getting there. He was in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, we had they had to set him up with everything, and you could tell that he was uh, his girlfriend, or I guess it was wife Rhonda was talking about his liver was gone. You know, they're trying to get some work done for him. So we, I think we had the last interview with him but you know even though it, and there's a couple things he disclosed too that I, I don't know what you can talk I, I don't know if he disclosed or if you can talk about that but we he had never said this before we had looked we'd I mean we did a lot of research on him looking at his YouTube videos read his book I read his the psychedelic the psychedelic tuna book man that was a weird I didn't, I didn't oh dude yeah, let yeah. me tell you I remember when he was writing it yeah. it, it was a trip but he he said that he actually at one time, he realized he was working with the CIA on a uh, on an operation. I think out of out of Columbia or something. But, but some of the information he was providing, or some of the stuff he was doing, uh, they were clearly agency personnel. Yeah, he mentioned that to me, but we didn't get into a lot of detail. But I think George was aware of you know some of the peeps that were working around that were connected to other mm -hmm. agencies. Yeah. yeah, and he was telling us also about how Noriega nationalized his bank account. Like he lost 60, 65 million dollars. Yes. No, I know. Yeah, we him and wow. I we had a lot of long conversations because I mean it, it was an, it's an interesting story. It really is. You know, and so um, you know, he told me 85% of the movie is pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. um, the 15% goes into details about his daughter. You know, he was very sensitive about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I got to meet the daughter that actually was the daughter depicted in the movie, hmm. who, in the long run, remained supportive of him. Nice. Um, 
But, you know, you dramatize movies, you romanticize movies. Steve, have you got any experience with that? No, Narc Narcos was all true. <laughs> if you like it, it was all true. If you don't like it, it's That's Hollywood. an interesting thing, though, because when you when you ask Steve, he'll tell you it's a third, a third, and a third. You know, yeah. it's like a third spot on, third's got some accuracy, but it's not depicted correctly, and a third is just made up. Yeah. But to hear George say that 85% was spot on, yeah. that is a... Well, he told us that, too, that yeah. for, and, for the most part. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, of course, how he got caught in the end compared to what you see in the movie. Now, let me tell you something. This is where he wouldn't get into do much detail. His last time he was caught was in Kansas, yeah. outside Topeka, Kansas. But he, and I'm from Kansas, so okay. I'm thinking, I may know some of the homeboys that were in on this. So what do you know? I mean, what was the, because it was outside Topeka somewhere is my understanding. Well, so he was, so when he talked to me about that, he was brokering, you know, these yeah. deals. And, of course, you know, when he, when he testified against Slater, I mean, he just, mm -hmm. you know, he just got free, really, because, you know, they, they cut him loose. I mean, he was looking at a 15-year sentence on that back in the early 80s. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and he had some interesting info about that, you know, his testimony and the permission he received to be able to testify without having a green light on his head, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, no, George, what he told me about this last time, is, you know, I said, why did you go back? I mean, you know, he's, and I'm sure he probably told you guys too, you know, he was addicted to that, that adrenaline rush. Yeah. And, uh, like that excitement. Yeah. He told me a story once, and again, maybe I'm being repetitive if he's told you the same story, but he was in a room when, um, Escobar was talking about shooting down a commercial airliner. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And he said, you know, in that, that graspy voice of his yeah, yeah, right yeah. in there, I knew I had to get out. Yeah. And I said, well, what did you get out? No. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I had to get out, but I stayed because I like the excitement. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And he was he was very honest about that. Yeah, I mean he just he was he was an adrenaline junkie. Yeah. I guess today he'd be bungee jumping, you know, doing that yeah. free gliding with the Oh yeah, he is. He's addicted. Uh, he's addicted to action, addicted to that adrenaline stuff, mm -hmm. and that's why. Uh, so, but going back real quick, what were the details on Kansas that he told you about? I mean, because you're right in line with what he was telling us. He said, "Look, he was trying to stay out of it. He didn't want to touch the product, but because he still had relationships and knew people, he was going to broker, yeah. you know, a deal." So now, my understanding, though, according to the part he told me, he there there was a point where things were happening up in Massachusetts. Yeah, he, there was a mass mass state police uh, that had actually infiltrated, and had uh, that was the one that led to that the, the arrest and the um, search warrant at his place where they found money and coke. I think that was like a year long UC operation by the mass state police. Well, so what he told me about that was, um, he said he woke up one morning, and he knew some stuff was happening at a residence in Massachusetts where where he was living, and he said he knew in his you know, inside himself that if he went to that residence that he believed it was under surveillance. But yet, even that with, with that in mind, he still went. And indeed, I think this is where this, where they began to identify him. Yeah. And my, 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 my entire recollection might not be entirely clear, but th this is what, the point, I guess, is that George actively walked into a situation that he believed was a residence under surveillance because he couldn't stay away from it. And indeed, it was under surveillance. Yeah. Wow. To identify. Now that that is a true addiction. Yeah. You know yeah. they're there. 
yeah. but I'm still going in. I got, I got to do it. I got to wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, uh, but yeah, so this broker deal. So what happened on that? He just, uh, but was he arrested in Kansas? You know, I, you're, you're, so you're talking about the last time. So yeah, the, the you're talking about what, what took him back to, yeah. because he got sentenced to 272 months. No, his, so he was, the district that sentenced George was in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So the jurisdiction was originated in Massachusetts. So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of read up on a couple things just recently. But the connection to Kansas, I, I don't know why he wouldn't have been arrested, charged. Charged there, right. There, yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but his, what, what sent him back in 97, that's when he was sentenced, ultimately, um, that was the district of Massachusetts where he was sentenced. Okay. So, yeah, so what, what connected Kansas, Massachusetts, yeah, I'm The other thing, too, is if you got, I, I don't know, um, you guys can answer this better than I can, but if you got three or four cases, at some point you might say, hey, look, we're going to prosecute this in one yeah. district. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah, so you could read, if you get your hands on what we call pre-sentence report, you have a lot of related cases. Yeah. And so certain cases are either dismissed or, or combined. Combined, mm-hmm. consolidated and then, yeah, into and then, one. Then you're, you're sentenced out of you know, one district. But you can have a lot of related cases yeah. with a lot of... Which is what happens districts. in drug trafficking because yeah. it doesn't all happen in one place. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, what we would do is we would... We would we would have a big meeting through Special Operations Division. You bring the attorneys in and the case agents, and through a knockdown, drag out fight, sometimes negotiation, figure out who's <laughs> got the most prosecutable case, and then all the resources went to that yeah, judicial right. district. Right, right. Yeah. So what led up to his ultimate arrest that, that sent him back? There were there were multiple instances of broker deals, hundreds of pounds of cocaine, you know, and so. Uh, they just combined all these, and that judge, I, you know, he told me, he told me that, you know, the judge told him, if I ever see you again, you know, I'm gonna you're going to hammer you. You're going away. <laughs> wow. But he did end up getting a reduction in That's some right, of his did. sentence. Yeah, he did. He was supposed to be sentenced, I think, to 70 years. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and ultimately was sentenced to 272 months. Whatever that is. Well, about 23 years, I yeah. think. So now, was did he ever tell you about? Um, Going down to Norman's Key in the Bahamas, where Carlos had bought the Confronting island and the airstrip and all that. You know, he, he so he did tell me about that because I found that to be an interesting part. Very of the movie. Yeah. But no, I'm not. I, you know, George told me a lot of stories, and unfortunately, I can't remember the details yeah. about him. But yeah, he, he shared that part with me because I, you know, and these are these are other parts that I do recall him saying that you know. Yeah. Maybe he went not, down there to kill Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. not point for point that the movie depicted, but he said it was pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, it's you know probably a lot of people, and he is our second highest listened to episode since we started the the Game of Crimes a year ago. Okay, yeah. And uh, it, people say, well, why are you interviewing a criminal? Well. It's the same reason we do it as police officers. You learn about the organizations, and that's what we wanted to learn about what's true yeah. from the movie Blow. Yeah. I was real curious personally to see, did you really meet Pablo Escobar? And, and, you know, he said he did. I never did. I saw Pablo after he was killed. That's yeah. the only time I ever saw him in my life. But um, Steve, spoiler, you just spoiled Narcos. <laughs> Pablo, Pablo gets killed if you didn't know that. He's room temperature. Um, yeah. but, but I'll tell you, I, I started, I said, did you ever go to Finca Napoli's? And that is, by car, that's a... 
that's a good two plus hour drive out of Medellin. And by Hilo, it's like a 30, 40 minute helicopter ride. And he re he recalled it differently than I did. But I don't think he was lying to me. I think he was out of finger. Well, he was so stoned out of his mind half the time. Probably he not knew he where probably he was. met Pablo <laughs> and just did, he thought it was there, but he was in a hotel. The yeah. one story, too, that I thought was interesting, too, he said he was in the hotel. Wasn't it, Steve, where they threw the guy off the balcony? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. no, I didn't hear that. Oh, that was in. Um, uh, where, where, where did you guys used to have the office that closed down in uh, Columbia? We, we had one in Medellin. We had one in Cali, uh, Barranquilla. Barranquilla. He was at a hotel in Barranquilla. I think that's what it was. And, yeah, he said some guys walked that's... upstairs and threw the guy out. <laughs> that's when it's like, it's time to go. Yeah, no, he didn't. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, leave the hotel maybe. But yeah, he yeah. Didn't have the business. No, he did Hey, let me ask you something, though. I, I know most stuff is digital now, but if you printed out George's file, just like on regular paper and stuff, how thick would that thing be? <laughs> yeah, George has, you know, I mean, if you're familiar with his criminal history, it's it's pretty damn extensive. Yeah. Um, so it would be pages and pages. Now. Yeah. yeah. It'd be like we, War and Peace. Yeah. Yeah. We. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe three, four inches thick. Holy cow. Yeah. 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 A, lot of, a lot of documentation on. It. Do I read through all of it? Absolutely not. Yeah. Well, you don't have to. There's some stuff that you just skim through because yeah. it's all boilerplate stuff, whatever. Yeah, but yeah. getting to the actual, like some of the details of the crime and what did he do for the violation? That's the. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. We. Yeah. We have to be familiar with that because we look at patterns of behavior. You know? So how did you end up with? George. I ended up with George because I heard he was coming to this district, and um, I tell you, I was—I've always been a big fan of the movie Blow. Yeah. I mean that, you know, from the opening soundtrack. Yeah. You know, the Rolling yeah. Stones, "Can't You Hear Me Knocking," and then just all the way through. And I was a big fan of Johnny Depp back in the day. Yeah. I still like Johnny Depp's acting. I do too. Um, Captain Jack Sparrow. The I love that it. is that is still it still beat Top Gun two. It is still the highest grossing movie on a Memorial Day weekend. It, it was two million dollars ahead of Top Gun two, and it was released what was it ten or twelve years earlier. So in Today's dollars series, from yeah. years ago. So yeah, right, wow, right. wow. No, I heard George was coming to this district, and um, the case was just randomly assigned to one of my counterparts, and he was also specializing in gangs, organized crime, and stuff. And I heard him talking about it, and he didn't sound enthused. So I just called him up and I said, "Hey, you want me to, you know, basically, you want me to take this case off your hands? It's going to be a media case. This, this, and that." And he didn't even hesitate. He said, "Yeah, take it." So I just cool grabbed it. So you guys could switch cases around in the office. Yeah, yeah we to can. a certain point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we look at certain things that you know make the cases you know equally you know relative to risk and the type of kind of work you're going to put into it, and we'll make swaps sometimes. So what was the first meeting with George like, and how did you prepare for that? Uh, well, I had already met his daughter um, and got some 411 from her. Uh, I had talked to the PO up in Sacramento that had previously worked with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, he was, he was incarcerated, and he was at our local halfway house. You know, finishing out his, his his custody time on the violation. Right. And uh, I just scheduled an appointment, had him come in the office, and I did my homework. And um, you know, I wasn't starstruck. I wasn't going to go about it like that. Yes. Yeah. Course, yeah. But I was very interested to talk to the guy. Now he showed up very respectful, and you know, I let people know when I work with him. Hey, look, I'm going to treat you as if I was sitting on that side of the table, and 
it may take you a little while to figure that out, but you know, once you figure it out, you know, we're going to have a comfort zone here. Now, George was he was ready to get started again. You know, I mean, you know, he he's. He's charismatic, of course. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that, which is why he's always been invited to continue to speak at functions, mm -hmm. you know, shows like this. He was supposed to come and speak here That's the year right. before COVID. No, I know. So, you know, interestingly, Mel and I, mm -hmm. you know, Mel and I worked on other cases together related to, you know, some stuff. And um, I had introduced that idea to Mel. Yeah. Oh. Supervising George at the time. Excuse us for the uh, tone here. Again, we, well, Steve's <laughs> bullshit meter just went off again. So, we are, Actually, there's a school that's uh, still being held in session at the location we're at. So every now yeah. and then we get the bell. Yeah, you don't get to go yet. We're not finished <laughs> yeah, with yeah, you. No, right? yeah. And, well, yeah, and so Mel was immediately, Yeah. It, it, for anybody, Mel Sosa is one of the organizers. Oh, he's a yeah, yeah, good friend, good yeah, friend. Yeah. And so we began kind of brainstorming stuff. I reached out to George. And George was immediately on board. He's like, yeah, you know, I'll do it. I'll fly down there for free. Wow. You know, George loves San Diego. Um, yeah. He was living, I think, in Michigan at the time. This was after he was off paper with us. Uh, yeah, and then we, we, we ended up contacting also uh, the DE agent that was responsible for that final takedown, or at least partly, Titterington. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, never I looked think, at that. Yeah, I think he's a chief up in, up in Michigan now. Hmm. But he was connected to... George's final takedown. And George had provided me this his name because George wanted to do some traveling with in convention work. So I reached out to him, introduced myself, and uh, said, hey, here's what we're thinking about doing. Would you be willing to come down, perhaps, with a Q&A session? You know, and, and he was on board for that as well. And so then the idea started kind of building larger, you know, maybe getting Johnny Depp involved to see if Johnny would come down because Joe Bastone, you know, showed yep. up here. And, uh, uh, yeah, kind of having, like, a, a bigger Q&A. And then Mel had proposed the idea of you guys being up there with, with the whole so – I, I, I think it would have been a hit. Oh, no, it, it would have been, been, been a hit. Yeah. And Whether or not Depp would have showed up is a different side story, but even you know, even without well, that, that was would, the yeah. day they almost caught Jack Captain Jack Sparrow. That's what he was. <laughs> that was the day Johnny Depp almost showed up to the yeah. game conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but this, but it, that's one of the things too. It's it's a larger than life thing. So, how did you guys? Uh, I know, I know it's, there's no such thing as really getting along famously you were developing before, but were there times where you really had some um, rough patches with George? Yeah, 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 yeah. and. Uh, yeah, I told George what to expect, you know, if we had to get to that day. You know, expect me to come out and be direct with you and let you know what's going on and what the consequences are going to be if you continue doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Was it kind of like can't. a three strikes and you're out? Did you give him a couple freebies? Well, you know, at that point, by the time we were, we were about a year into, you know, the supervised release, and uh, seemingly he had he was adjusting well. And so, you know, got some bits and pieces of information and uh, let him know, hey, George, here's where we stand. Here's what I know. Yeah. I'm going to ask you just to be honest because I don't want to go back and forth through the he said, she said stuff. We both know this is accurate information, so just let me know what happened. And he hesitated. He's staring at me, calculating, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, no, and he was fine. He was forthright, you know. And, um, yeah, just kind of the typical stuff that, you know, Led to him being returned last time. Started kind of doing it again, and and because he was he was honest and upfront, I said, "All right, well, let's work through this, and let's let's 
try to prevent you from going back inside because if you know if you continue this, this is exactly well, he would die happens. inside if he went yes, back inside. Yes, no, I know. And by that time, he had already had a pacemaker placed in, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, because you know while he was on supervised release for me, you know he 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 was he was filming that documentary series. Yep. Yeah, and in the midst of that. I remember the day pretty clearly because, you know, I got multiple calls. But, yeah, he had fainted, rushed to the hospital, and ended up having a pacemaker for him. Hmm. So, you know, one of the questions we asked him, we were, we were asking him, said, during the whole time you were in the business and stuff, how much of your product went up your nose? And he said, like, you know, about a half a million dollars worth. He said, but that's not what's killing me. It was the drinking and his liver. That's what got to him was all of the heavy drinking and partying. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking, a half a million Bucks worth of coke up your nose, and that's not the problem. Dude, how much you, drinking is that? Yeah, how much drinking is that? <laughs> yeah, he loved. What was, he loved his brandy, right? Is that what it was? Uh, that I, I thought don't it was know. Jack Dan. I, or maybe, maybe it was. It could yeah. Have been, yeah, yeah, the bourbon. The, the bourbon. bourbon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, he was looking forward. To, he's always looking forward to the day he finally got off paper. You know, and you know, always wanted, he always wanted to meet me for a drink. <laughs> which, for the record, we did. yeah. Well, one question I got. So when we were interviewing him, uh, you posed a question to him, and he said, uh, "He, you said, you asked him, have you ever killed anybody?" And he really hesitated, and said, you reworded. You said, "I said, have, have you have shot more than five or less than five? Yeah. I said, have you ever shot anybody? He says, "Well, I said, how, how about more than five or less than five? Let's just say less than five. Yeah. yeah he, so what, I, I've asked him the same question, and he's he's always denied that he actually killed someone. Okay, but but he did he did admit he did admit indirectly to shooting somebody because yeah. I said well let's say more than five or less than five yeah. ah less than five yeah, and he told us a story about going down to Norman's Key with the intent of killing Carlos and then yeah. he couldn't do it when he got in there he said he just couldn't do it. He shared a story with me one time, uh, and this was the only story that he related to me where he said that if he could have done things differently he would have, and he believes that because of the amount of product that he was bringing in. And the amount of product that even continued to come in because, you know, he was kind of the, the point of this sphere, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, that he realized that this ultimately led to the crack epidemic and, you know, what happened in our cities yeah. right, from coast to coast and yeah. deaths and crime. And, and that was the only part where he said that if, if he realized what that would have created, that he would have done things differently and maybe not have participated the way he did. Wow! Yeah, that was the only th that was the only story he ever told me, where he he expressed some kind of remorse. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because cow. you know, because he was the you know the whole explosion of coke. It, it, you can trace right back to George Young. Yeah, that's I right. mean, yeah. that's he was in kind of, and I think people. Um, Forget too, and Steve, you know, because you, you talk about this DEA all the time. I mean, there's the, you've got people who supply it, you know, they're the source, you've got the transportation, mm -hmm. then you've got the distribution. And uh, that's what eventually kind of led to George's downfall. He got, he got cut out, and it was by Carlos, right? Because yeah. yeah. he made the mistake of introducing him into his dealer on, on the West Coast. Yeah. Played by Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody else who went to jail. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Dude, I'm much a, different reasons. Yeah, yeah. He's, I'm not a big fan of Pee Wee Herman, but he actually did a good job. Yeah, he well, did. He well, did. That yeah. was a good California thing, yeah. So, no, yeah. we had a lot of discussion. So, um, um, what was there anything about George that you want to tell folks that really didn't come out in the movie or something maybe his daughter said that you're allowed to talk about that really puts George's life into perspective? I, that's a tough philosophical question, but that's why we're here, dude. You, if you wanted yeah, no, it I'm easy, thinking, I'm you'd thinking, work for yeah. the state, yeah, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, George shared a lot of his life story with me. Um, 
And uh, I, I knew when, you know, because of course we, you know, part of our job is going out to do compliance checks, yes. home inspections, yeah. being very intrusive in people's homes. Um, and and ask, answer one question about that too. When they're on federal supervised release, probation, yeah. parole, um, they do sign. Do they sign documents though, where they give up uh, Fourth Amendment rights, like to search and seizure? Because you, I mean, do you have the authority to go in without a warrant and search and look through the residence? Yeah. So we have we have two or three, four actually, maybe even beyond that, different search conditions. One of those relates to the Fourth Waiver Amendment um, search condition, which is any time, day or night, with or without probable cause, reasonable suspicion, any officer can go in and do the thing. Any officer or only any federal probation? Any officer. Any, any law enforcement officer. Any law enforcement officer. Yes, that oh. includes feds. State, state local? Local, yeah. Damn. Wow. Yeah. wow. I, don't, I don't recall that. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, if I had known that then, there would have been a lot of bad guys well, not hold on, but that, That's not the standard search condition that's imposed yeah. in every federal case. Now, state of California, parole, probation, you, you normally do have fourth, fourth, fourth waiver amendment um, search conditions. But with feds, they're, they're usually reserved for, you know, elevated risk cases. Yeah. Or people such as George Ware, you know. He's at been, one time was perhaps public enemy number one in, you know, in certain eyes of law enforcement. Yeah. Um, but I never, I, I never got to the point where, you know, George was up to anything that I would have gone in with a team of people to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I mean, we do we do have that discretion in certain cases. So yeah. you're, but you're talking about too. You were going there to do compliance checks. So we're talking about learning some stuff about George. So yes, yeah, yeah. So oh yeah, yeah. So oh, when I when a George was on my, I guess my, my list of people that that I would want to see for the day, I anticipated that that the, the, there would be an extended contact. You know, because I you know I got into conversations with him, and and I think sometimes George. I think sometimes George was always George was surrounded by people, you know, at times where you know, they're trying to make money off of him, mm -hmm. people with maybe not the most genuine intentions. And I think what George appreciated about when I showed up is that I had no ulterior motive, you know, to do these type of things. And so I think this is what really compelled him to want to sit down for a while mm -hmm. and talk. Yeah. You know, because sometimes, you know, in this industry that we're in, we're the most normal people that some of these guys see. Yeah, because they deal with people who are constantly in yeah. crisis. And yeah. 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 But, yeah. you know, you brought up a good point, too. I saw that, too, with some of the stuff, George. I saw some people wanting to profit off of George, and so they'd bring him to events. It's like they, they wanted, it's like they almost wanted to trot him out like, a, you know, here's our little pet, you know, and it's George Young. And it's like, and when Steve and I were approaching this podcast, it's like, no, we, we want more to really, I mean, we probably had a, one and or two hour, a little over two hours with George. Mm -hmm. I mean, we went into depth with him on stuff, you know, from growing up, you know, what happened, uh, things like that. So it was not more about trotting him out. I just saw him, like you're talking about getting used. I just saw some people out there wanted to have some brush with fame and mm -hmm. greatness. And so, yeah, you know, I, I weren't, you know, he, he introduced me to some of these managers and, um, uh, that, 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 that he connected with, um, one in particular, I, I I knew pretty well. She was great, you know. She was great to him, treated him well. She was the one that um, was taking charge of the this seven part series, if that's what mm -hmm. it ultimately ended up being about this, you know, this new biography. Um, but subsequent to dealing with her, he had introduced me to some people, and I just said, "Yo, you, you got to be careful with this person. Yeah, you know, he doesn't have your best intentions in mind." 
Now yeah, just, and these were leeches. You know, yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. the word I was that's thinking. That's the word, yeah. yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Just, so how long uh, was George on paper with you? A little over two years. So he ultimately started with me beginning of uh, 2017 and uh, was terminated by the court. Oh, no, no, be, be more okay. He wasn't terminated. Terminated, no, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Ah, we're terminated. He was, he was released from supervision by okay. the court um, early, actually. Yeah. And I, I, I was supportive of that. You know? Why? George was slowing down, you know, and, you know, he wasn't, you know, I, I use that term loosely, but, you know, he wasn't public enemy number one anymore. He wasn't, he wasn't going to broker any deals. I mean, this guy, you know, George was just in, not in great health. No, he was in survival mode, getting yeah. towards the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, my position was, hey, let's just try to let this guy live out the rest of his life in some you know, relative peace, you know, instead of being under the under the microscope in the bubble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, well, the, you know, and, and yeah, the court agreed. The court agreed with uh, you know the the recommendations that were put in motions and and cut him loose. Um, April 2019. And then he moved back to Massachusetts. Yeah, he moved He moved a couple different places. He was in Michigan for a while. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> living at the Ford Mansion is what he called it. I looked it up, but it's privately owned now, but it was quite the place. Um, but again, he was doing this because he had financial agreements with you know, presentations and making right. agreements and stuff. Um, but yeah, he bounced around a bit, but ultimately ended up back up in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it was in Florida for a little while too. So he, you know, we kept in touch, you know, so he was released from supervision April, 2019. And we, we remained in touch pretty frequently. Um, but you never went out and had a drink with him? No, never, no. <laughs> <laughs> and did he, once he was off paper, did he pester you to have that drink? Oh, well, he was never in town. And, you know, if he was in town, maybe I would have gone to see him while he was having a drink. But, yeah. 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 No, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was looking forward to seeing him again. You know, I mean, he, he called me pretty consistently. I called him. And, you know, this is, I mean, you know, these are the way that, you know. But not everybody's about. like that, though, no. that you supervise. No, no, no. No. Oh. There, there, there have been a few people. Um, I bet there's a lot that you never want to see. There's again. a lot of you're glad. I'm glad I'm done with you, pal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, hey, look, these people are human, too. I mean, and. Some of the stuff may be violently heinous, um, but they did their time. They readjusted. They met the conditions. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, and, you know, and, and, and just to further add on that a little bit, even though we might not like it, that's our judicial system, and we swore to uphold what the sure. system is. So yeah. Yeah. You, did, you did your time. That means you paid your dues in that's the right. eyes of justice here in the yeah. United States. And I, I, I've never been one to, you know, that whole under my thumb, this is what you did, I'm going to continue to remind you. Well, then they just get angry, and then they say, is, does this ever end? Now, it's one thing if you if you uh, burgled a house. It's another thing if you killed people or, you know, were doing heinous things like you say. You've got to expect there's going to be a different yeah, if level. you're a Charlie Manson kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Out of all of the people that you supervise or stuff, you know, just on average, on average, how many people um, are recidivist? How many people end up, percentage-wise, come back and do time? Because George was one of those that did. He got out, yeah. was on paper, violated his conditions, came back, did a little time. It's a yo-yo. Um, yeah, I, I, could, I, could, I could get into the statistics and some of the the risk assessments that, that we use that predict mm -hmm. recidivism, violent crimes. You know, these are all kind of things that we can use data from the past to mm -hmm. 
help kind of the future yeah. and yeah so based on those those factors um, the risk predictability for reoffense recidivism it's it's incredibly high and very accurate and that's, I mean, it's become more scientific. Before it used to be kind of like, you know, you hold your thumb up, do we think they're going to do it? But we've collected so much data over the years and stuff. You can say somebody's background. It's like when they book somebody into jail and they look at the risk factors. Are they risk to themselves? Have you moved recently? Have you lost a job? Have you lost somebody? You know, been divorced, whatever. You can look for a lot of things and say, hey, this is a predictor that this person will be a risk in jail of harming themselves. That's right, yeah. So we call these factors criminogenic needs, a.k.a. dynamic risk factors, and they, they will identify like certain factors such as um, associates or uh, alcohol and drugs. And if you, you know, these are the type of things you want to pay attention to for people that are being released to, and when you address those type of risk factors, the idea is that you reduce uh, the rates of recidivism or reoffense. Right. Man, this is just, look, we may have to do just a whole episode just on this stuff. Hey, but before we close off, uh, other than George, is there another famous name that you have, uh, um, that you can mention? Or just, just say their name and we'll, we promise we'll edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that off. I'll, how about if I do that off, off, uh, off mic? That sounds yeah. good. And we won't right. put you in a bind. Well, yeah, well, but yeah, let's because these people are still alive. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, let's yeah. tease people. We won't say anything. Just kind of like the genre or what it, what um, might it be. Movie star. Motorcycle gangs. Gotcha. Yeah. God, oh, that's well. We don't want to. We, we don't want to talk about that, considering we're down here at the Southern California Gang Conference. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, look, this has been fun. So, uh, final thoughts though about George. Um, was he? You think the justice system treated him pretty fairly for what he did? I think George will tell you that. that uh, you know, we, we had that conversation, and you know, he was. You know, he was angry, but he he said that you know he got what he deserved. Yeah. Um, and I think in the end, you know, he. I, I think that he was grateful for finally getting off paper. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, for what little life he had, which was, what, an additional two years. Two years, yeah. One story I do want to tell, though, real quick. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned it to you yesterday. You know, George stayed in touch with me um, for those two years from the time he was discharged from supervision. Um, so May of last weeks, year. A couple yeah. weeks before, before he died. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, he he told me, and gosh, I don't know how long this was before his death, but I really believe that this was one of the major attributors to things. He and his and Rhonda were traveling through New Mexico, and uh, he they, they stopped at a rest stop. <clears throat> Rhonda goes in, gets some stuff. He's lounging in the backseat of the car, taking a nap. He got bit by a brown recluse. Oh my God! Oh, his, those are wicked. You know, on his big toe. And he ended up in a hospital for quite some time. He had called me from there. You know, he explained to me that they want to amputate his leg from like, you know, wow, just just below the the knee down. I mm -hmm. believe it was. He refused. They sent him home, much antibiotics. And I'm going to tell you, I believe that that spider bite was was, was the reason for his demise, perhaps a bit prematurely. Oh, and um, yeah, he was know, already I, compromised, if, you know, yeah, immune yeah, yeah. system wise and everything. Yeah, yeah, and so and I, and I talked to Rhonda as well, and you know, Rhonda had, had and, and and he told me too, and, you know, in other conversations, that he just was never the same person. And, yeah, and Rhonda 
had made, mentioned as well that you know he shared that with her. And I think that she probably is of the opinion. Although at the end he had ascites and you know that was affecting. Yeah, and he was in the wheelchair when we yeah, interviewed yeah, yeah. him and so everything. Yeah, he's got his stomach drained and, and, and all that. But man, that spider bite. I, and I, I guess I guess the reason why I mentioned it is the the irony of it, right? I mean, to go through all of this stuff and have a fucking spider, yeah, a little, right? a little bitty bug, crazy. Yeah, I know. He dodged so. Pablo. He dodged yeah. Carlos. He dodged all these other. Dodged the guy getting thrown out of his hotel room, and it's a damn spider. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that that sums it up for George. Is like he, he he lived a charmed life. I mean, he's lucky. He, you're right. He's lucky he hadn't died like ten times prior right, to this. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I I always enjoyed his conversations, and yeah. So I still I still keep in touch with Rhonda, you know, his girlfriend. So actually, final thought. I say final thought. This is the final, 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 final thought. All right. So, uh, how'd you take the news when George passed away? Yeah, that was pretty rough. You know, I had just talked to him. I don't know what it was a couple weeks before, um, and he went into hospice care pretty quickly. Um, I was following Rondo on Facebook after we had interviewed him, and I was tracking some of that. Yeah, and I, I, I think um, it was Rhonda who reached out to me to let me know. Um, we, we, we corresponded via text, and I spoke to her recently on the phone. But, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I had I had a network of people that I worked with with George, and we, you know, we called each other and you know, just talked about some of our stories that we, that we had with him. Talked about mm. George. Yeah, yeah. Are there stories to come out about George that we haven't heard about yet? You know, I, I, I'm not certain of that. Um, you know, I, I could probably recall other stuff that he and I talked about, but I'm looking forward to this, perhaps his documentary that, that was filmed because, you know, he was, he was on my watch at the time that he was traveling, filming that, and I think the premise of that is pretty interesting. You know, they're going back to the sites where he was first introduced to the, to the, to the marijuana dealer in, yeah. up in Long Beach or wherever it was. Yeah, and then they and then uh, retrofitting those uh, uh, mobile homes or those RVs to be able to hide all the marijuana. And, and then where they did that, yeah. like where they first flew in over there by the Salton Sea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were filming these areas and um, something placed down in Florida. So I think the connection of that documentary could be pretty cool. And I guess if there's other stuff that comes out, I'm interested to see the interview that he did with Tuna. Because I remember when they flew up there mm-hmm. and they were reunited with Tuna. And yeah. I remember I kept, I, you know, I asked him like before we met him, how we met him, how it went and stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, he told me the story, you know, of how it went. Um, but uh, I mean, nothing extraordinary about it. But Tuna just seemed more quiet, I guess, compared to when he knew him. Of course, we're talking yeah. 30 some years later, right? Yeah. yeah. And I guess if you read the book, you know how they kind of parted their ways, which is also interesting. But yeah, I, I guess, you know, if there's more stuff to come out, maybe it'll come out in that. Um, Walk that, away that for that the series. documentary. Yeah. Yeah. All right, brother. Well, man, this has been. This uh, It's amazing that we got to meet you here. And I think Mel brought you over and introduced us to us. It was a drive by. That's what it was. It was a drive by well, interview. We, we met yeah. for the first time a few years ago when you guys did one of your first presentations. And I came up and I said, hey, George Young. And yeah, of course you recognize the name, and that's when I was so actively supervising. That's how long ago it was. Wow. And then I, you know, I saw you guys sitting out there, and I said, I'm sure you were aware. Of, I wasn't aware that he already interviewed with you, but mm-hmm. I'm, I was sure you were aware. Of, you know, his yeah. Thanks yeah, to Mel and back stuff. then we, I, I didn't even know Morgan back then. We hadn't right. even thought about a podcast back then. So yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Thank man. you very much, Craig. It's been Absolutely. a true pleasure, okay. brother. Yeah. Thanks, brother, man. Yeah. All yeah, right. Sure. My pleasure. Just make sure. Hey, but the great thing about it is if I ever fuck up in California and we're together, we'll have a drink first before I call. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hey, thanks, everybody. Let's get the drink in first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, right. All right, man. Thanks. Yep. Now let's stay tuned for the debrief.
this would be kind of a long, it's a long episode, but man, what did I tell you? We got Craig Belinsky, George Young's probation officer, federal parole officer, actually. Yeah, baby. Uh, but look, everybody, that was, I mean, Aaron was so passionate. Claudia was so much fun. Um, Victor, Mr. Sandbagger himself, we had a good chat with him. He brought his son <laughs> out too. Great to see his son yep. uh, doing, selling a lot of books and stuff. And then Mr. Eye Candy himself, Lou Velozzi, so... Yeah, you know what? On and <clears throat> as good as all those interviews were, just to catch up on what they're doing now, you're not going to hear the story from Craig Belinsky anywhere else. This is the only place you're going to hear. It's like the rest of the story from Paul Harvey about George George Young. I keep calling him Young, but it's Young. And by the way, uh, Craig has committed, and actually, we got commitments from some other folks. In fact, one of the folks we talked to uh, is in the intelligence unit in the California Department of Corrections. He was the he was there when Charlie Manson died. He's got pictures of him with Charlie Manson. Um, you know, we we've got access to all of these people, so it's really good. But what I what I really liked about this, like I said, yeah, we we caught up. But Craig has Craig has committed, and we got got to get approval. We think we can do. We've done master classes before, like with Steve Matelski, we did a master class on organized crime mm -hmm. in Canada. Eh? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Steve Cook came on, did a master class on outlaw motorcycle gangs. Mm -hmm. Well, Craig. Has is, is has a ton of expertise working with cartels, uh, organized crime, and prison gangs inside the prison. So we're going to do a master class on gangs that operate inside federal prison. Um, and it's just, oh, man, just some of the stories he talked about when we got off the air, um, quit recording, were just, this, this will be awesome. That's all I can say. We talked to guys. Actually, I'm hoping we can get his partner on too, uh, Steve. One of the deputies we ended up striking up a conversation with, kept talking to, there is a video out there of his partner who got exposed to fentanyl. Yeah. And it uh, it just it just rips your heart out, man. This guy, good-looking deputy, you know, just a young one. He's in training, getting ready, finishing training. He's looking at some drugs, and you can see his eyes roll in the back of his head, and he falls over like a log. No breaking the fall, just falls over like the log. And it took four doses of Narcan to bring this guy back. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now he, uh, and, and what Morgan's talking about there, the guy, he's so humble. He doesn't want to talk about it. He, he actually, they, he let them filming for a training video, but apparently it was released and went viral and he's rather embarrassed because of it. Uh, whereas, you know, we, I, shit, you look at him as a man who was willing to give his life for his country right there. You know, fortunately, they were were able to bring you back. So we'll see what happens. We'll try. Yeah, and we've got, like I said, another guy. Everything from drones inside prisons to the the one thing we did want to talk about. One of the guys we'll talk to. Um, we we really want to dive in and do a master class as well on the Aryan Brotherhood inside prison, how they operate, what they do. This guy's d just a total expert on that. So we have got a lot of good stuff coming up. But this one, I thought this was fun. Like I say, hope. Work with us on the audio quality. We tried to do our best to level everything out, make it sound good. But remember, we're remote. Uh, we're in an area that doesn't have great acoustics. Uh, but I think, it, you know what, overall, I'm pretty proud. I mean, we set it up. It's our first time with our mobile podcasting platform. We deployed it. We set it up correctly. And we achieved our goal, which was to get some recordings. The only person we didn't get, and he was busy, uh, but we got to meet Alex. You know, yeah, and, uh, Alex Collins. Yeah, and uh, – he actually introduced Claudia to give her the award, I think, right? So he handed the award to her. So what a great, what a great moment. Absolutely. And there's, there's so many other names that we've got on the list from uh, additional law enforcement heroes we met out there. Some of them were having to wait just a little bit because they have ongoing um, 
investigations involving the incidents they were involved with, I guess would be the nicest way to put it. But we're going to bring so much good content to you. Just got a call today. I was just telling morning before we recorded this, young lady out in Oklahoma City shot multiple times with a high-powered rifle, 223 rounds, survived. We're going to get her on here to tell her survival story. I, I'm just, hell, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about this. This is, you know, and the thing with this mobile recording, tell us if you're hearing anybody else doing that, because I'm not aware of them. But we might have a first here in true crime podcasting. Nah, there's, you don't get out much, Murph. <laughs> well, don't give them credit. Don't, don't give anybody else credit. This is a game I, of crimes. I'm not giving them credit. I'm just acknowledging is that now what we do break ground on is that it's the people. And I'll tell you, that's the, a lot of feedback we've gotten from you folks who have been so kind to leave uh, five-star reviews. Uh, you've, you send us email. You tell us about the impact it's made on you. And uh, we, we're just very humbled. Look, it's not about us. It's about the, it's about the story. We goof around at the beginning, at the end, but when we're in the middle and stuff, it's it's really about the story. It's like Mark Comboy, mm-hmm. episode uh, 53. Just so proud to have have worked with that guy and what he went through. They, they saved lives that day. These folks were on a killing spree. They were going to kill people. They killed uh, you know, three people mm-hmm. within like two hours, wounded a, a deputy sheriff, and they were on to kill more people. This is the stuff a lot of people don't hear about. And you know what? The biggest thing is, spoiler, don't, if you haven't heard it, don't listen to this part. Three, two, one. Um, we found out he sandbagged us. He was kidnapped and robbed as a 16-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's like a point we would like to know about in a damn podcast. Yep. Yep. Holy okay. Cow. You can start listening now. Spoiler Ooh, alert over. Wow. So anyway, but hopefully you guys enjoyed this. So anyway, if you enjoyed that, just head on over to Apple and the Spotify. Hit those five stars. Tell us what you think, especially this episode. If you like the catch-up, you like hearing from the people. As we say in the wild, it's like I feel like Marlon Perkins in Wild Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. There we saw him in the wild and the dangerous <laughs> anaconda. Um, anyway, so we had fun with those guys. So head on over there, hit those five stars. Head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com, our website. Like I said, that's where we put books. Um, additional, you can listen to all the episodes there. For some reason, Apple screws me over again. And you mm-hmm. follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. But and uh, also paypal.com. Just use our email, game of crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you. I was about to say, but where you got to be? Well, you got to be on PayPal and Patreon. We get, or uh, uh, yeah, PayPal. But where you got to be, though, is Patreon. I just yes. kind of screwed that up. I'm not going to re record it. It is no. what it, it has been a long week. <laughs> That's all I can say. There's something going on, some really good stuff. We just put in a grant application uh, working with the state police, uh, a very large county police agency, to inst- to basically build out this thing that I've been working on for a long time. So I'm tired. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about me. It only, only that matters is you. So anyway, patreon.com, where you got to be. we got great stuff coming out. Um, we got some good. We got some fun stuff too, and like we say, the real DEA narcos talking about the real DEA narcos. Cali edition is coming out. Yep, you got to listen. You got. I mean, even if you just join us for the the duration of that, it's you're not going to hear that anywhere else. I promise you. Sixteen hours. You will not hear this. And trust me. And it's so good. Chris is working on a book. They have a screenplay. He goes, uh, dude. He says we talked about so much stuff. I'm afraid I might forget it. Chris doesn't forget too much, but I have. I would say. Uh, probably 300 pages of transcripts of all those things that he's got plus the files. So unbelievable. It, you know, and, be and good. The, one of the first ones we put on a Patreon was Javier and I going through 12 hours of the, the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar investigation. I was just out in Kentucky this week. Uh, we spoke to the Kentucky Bar Association and during a social hour, a, a film producer came up to us and they're like, hey, if I want to find out more about you guys. So I told him about Game of Crimes 
and I told him about Patreon, he said, I'm subscribing. I, I want to hear the all 12 hours. And I said, well, <laughs> you're going to get some bonus in there for the Cali cartel as well. That's right, man. That's right. So anyway, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. And guys, we really enjoyed this. Like I said, our first time doing remote podcasting. Um, you know, we, we tried to make the sound, but again, just cut us a break. Listen to the story, though. Don't focus in on the, you know, well, you, you were a little soft here. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> Listen to the story. It's about the story. It's not you know? about us at all. It's, well, it is. It, it is when it's the intro and the outro. But during the middle, <laughs> the meat, we're the buns, but the, the meat stuff. is all about you. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is great. Thanks all for right. hanging in there with us, everybody. Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the original, unadulterated, spiced up, and on location game of crimes. 